G'day, mate. Forty here. Your friendly neighborhood no-fap warrior. Right, together we can achieve victory over sin. And I'm a little confused. Why is it whenever I consult mainstream news media sources about what the hell is going on in Ukraine, that from the mainstream media, from the New York Times to the ABC in Australia to Peter Zion, they're all telling me about how Russia's running out of missiles, that Russia's economy is getting absolutely crushed by these sanctions, right? That uh, you know, Putin just has, has engaged in some monumental act of, of complete folly, that Russia can't continue, that uh, Ukraine's winning the war. All right, I mean, one of my frequently consulted sites on on uh, YouTube is Times Radio. That's right, from the the Times of London. And it's just relentless, day in, day out. It's all about how Russia's getting crushed. There's no way Russia can win. Those plucky Ukrainians... Right, three cheers for the plucky Ukrainians. And emotionally, I am one hundred percent on the side of Ukraine. One hundred percent, all my feels are on the side of Ukraine. But on the other hand, whenever I consult dissident voices, such as Scott Ritter or Colonel Douglas McGregor, is often showing up on Tucker Carlson, they tell me the complete opposite of the mainstream media narrative. So, who's right, our elites or the dissidents? Right? Is the New York Times right? Is the Times of London right? Right. Is, is Peter Zion right? Or are people like Douglas McGregor, retired Colonel Douglas McGregor, or people like uh, Scott Ritter? Like, who is right? And I don't know. I'm, I'm stuck here in the middle with you. Just uh, trying to figure out, you know, what's going on. But there's just such a relentless narrative, moralistic narrative from the mainstream media and our elites that, uh, you know, evil Russia... Right. Evil Vladimir Putin's got a personality disorder and he's just Putin's just completely out of control. You cannot compromise with evil Russia and Putin are evil. And so you can't compromise with evil. They must be stopped. This is like Munich in 1938. We must rally around those plucky, brave Ukrainians. We must send them billions of dollars of aid. And it's just relentlessly moralistic. This is just like good versus evil. And so whenever you sacralize something, make it into a battle of good versus evil, it's a lot harder to make a compromise. And it's also harder to see things objectively. Anything that you regard as sacred, you cannot then see objectively. So if I regard uh, Orthodox Judaism as sacred, then I can't see Orthodox Judaism objectively. And I cannot make any compromise with my Orthodox Judaism because Orthodox Judaism is sacred and the secular Goetia world not sacred. If one holds Christianity as sacred, then you can't compromise on the essential teachings of Christianity because it comes from God and you're going to side with, with the devil over God. If you if you feel that you know anti-racism, anti-bigotry, anti-ignorance, that is your sacred crusade, then you cannot compromise with racists and bigots and those who willfully remain ignorant or you know, enlist other people in ignorance and bigotry and racism. So Jonathan Haidt, he spelled this out so clearly. He said that, you know, anything you hold sacred, you cannot see objectively. That uh, ties, the things that bind us, right? Ties bind us and blind us. So whenever you feel you, you create a bond with someone 
or with a particular in-group, you then become blind. And so the way that I try to navigate this dance is that I try to step outside of myself at times and try to see things as an outsider to my in-group or as an outsider to my point of view or as an outsider to my religion would see things. So that way I get the benefits of in-group identity. I get the energy and the strength of the cohesion that comes from having a strong in-group identity. And I can step outside of what would look like a cult to many people. Any strong in-group identity is going to take on many cult-like characteristics. And so I step outside, try to see things from an objective third party. So when I was uh, walking down the street with an Orthodox Jew from Israel a few months ago, he started yelling out death to the Arabs. Now, I understand that sentiment from someone who's you know, had a long conflict with, with the Arabs, but obviously that's a totally maladaptive, you know, dysfunctional, anti-American uh, thing to to yell out. It, it makes Jews look bad. It just does not go over well. And so if I were, it doesn't take a lot of empathy on my part to imagine myself as someone who's not Jewish, not Arab, doesn't have any particular perspective on the Arab-Israeli conflict, but would be offended seeing an Orthodox Jew walk down the street yelling out death to the Arabs. They would be equally offended if someone walked down the street yelling death to the Jews. So I think that is the way that we can retain the benefits of in-group identity and the benefits of having things that are sacred in our life by just taking a little time out on a virtually daily basis to try to understand how the things that you hold sacred and your most sacred commitments, your most passionate in-group identities, how they look to people outside of your conviction and outside of your in-group. And so that's the way that I try to balance between the sacred and the profane. So I'd like to think that on this show that we do some special things that you don't get on other distant shows. For example, I don't believe that I come to this show with the perspective that I have been victimized and I'm also the hero fighting the sources of victimization for you and for me, right? That is a bogus trope that seems to dominate dissident uh, podcasts and dissident live streams, that uh, the host is simultaneously the victim. He's been held down by the globalists. And he's also, at the same time, he's the hero. He's going to free you from the yoke of the globalists. So I'd like to think that I don't fall into that rather lame dichotomy where the host is both the victim and the savior, both the victim and the hero, right? I'd like to say that uh, we, we, you know, we transcend such uh, simple binaries. Also, another way that we transcend, I think, is that on this show, we allow the secular to critique the sacred and the sacred to critique the secular. So I'm, I believe I'm able to step outside of my in-group identity. I believe I am somewhat able to step outside of my sacred commitments and try to see them from an objective third party perspective and, you know, have, have those conversations through, you know, all sorts of different uh, strong in-group identities and strong sacred identities. So those are some of the ways that uh, I think this show is is different from almost every other dissident podcast out there. Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass has declared a housing emergency. All right. Does that actually make any difference? So homelessness is largely a problem of alcoholism, largely a problem of drug abuse, largely a problem of personal dysfunction, and also the price of housing plays a role. So California has opted for lots of zoning restrictions, which have massively increased the price of housing. 
while protecting the environment and the astronomical price of housing. Yeah, I think that probably plays a role in many people becoming homeless. I don't think declaring homelessness an emergency is going to fix it. The more you subsidize homelessness, the more you subsidize social dysfunction, the more you subsidize antisocial behavior, the more you subsidize people acting like losers, the more you subsidize people making self-destructive and antisocial choices, then the more uh, that antisocial, horrible, you know, drug abusing, alcohol abusing, uh, defecating in the street uh, behavior you, you're going to get. Did Luke ever interview Hugh Hefner? Hugh Hewitt. Uh, I never interviewed Hugh Hefner. I have taken his picture on many occasions. I know people who work for him and remarked on the, the very uh, suspicious and bizarre relationship between Hugh Hefner and his daughter is a Christie Hefner, who ran Playboy for, for many years. Uh, Hugh Hewitt, i slightly acquainted with Hugh Hewitt. We've uh, traded emails. We've spoken in person. So even people who completely disagree with Hugh Hewitt, uh, who have completely different politics than Hugh Hewitt, often remark on what a gentleman he is. Like, he is a nice guy. He's, he's very pleasant to talk to and interact with. Yes, I, I was at the Playboy Mansion in something like uh, December of 2006. It was the same night that the Dallas Cowboys beat the Michael Vick-led Atlanta Falcons. So I believe that was December of 2006. So what the hell is going on in Ukraine? Is Russia winning or is NATO winning? So this war is not Russia versus Ukraine. This war is Russia versus NATO because Ukraine has effectively been a de facto member of NATO, right? Not de jure, they're not officially a, a member of NATO, but they've officially been a de facto member of NATO for several years now, and that's why they're doing so well. Okay, first, the, uh, the mainstream perspective here from Bill Browder, who says that nobody... There's nobody that Putin hates more than uh, Bill Browder. From my perspective, there's, there's no realistic possibility that this war ends. Um, unless and There's only two scenarios that it would end. Either Russia wins the war, which we hope won't happen and it probably won't happen, or Ukraine wins the war. The, the, neither side has any capacity to negotiate. Uh, Putin started this war, and from his perspective, any negotiation looks like weakness, and any weakness would end up him losing his position as president of Russia. And if he lo loses his position, he ends up going to jail and probably dying. On the other side... Russia has committed such unbelievable and terrible war crimes that there's no way that the Ukrainians have any capacity to give up territory or make any concessions to Russia. And so we're in this situation now where um, Russia cannot win militarily. We've seen the Ukrainians put up an amazing fight. They've done so because of their bravery, and they've also done so because of great... Okay, so there's a documentary on Netflix which indicates that the CIA uh, murdered a scientist who was uh, not thrilled with the with America's use of chemical weapons in North Korea. So if these allegations are true, the United States extensively used chemical weapons during the Korean War against the North Koreans and the Chinese. Is that a major violation of human rights? And if, if the U.S. did indeed use these chemical weapons, how was the United States and China and North Korea able to arrive at a, at a settlement? So I, I don't think there's anything about the committal of, of war crimes that makes it Im absolutely impossible to reach some sort of settlement. It's um, equipment being provided by the EU, UK, and America. And so Putin can't win militarily, and all he can do now is basically try to destroy Ukraine, make it uninhabitable. That's his only strategy. And to carry on in a way that he creates more refugees so the West becomes tired of supporting Ukraine. And so this is, um, and, and for what it's worth, this is not a new strategy. Every other 
war he's ever fought. He just does what's, what we call scorched earth. He did it in Chechnya, he did it in Syria, and now he's doing it in Ukraine. And yet earlier this month we heard from Putin that he was possible, uh, was open to talks on a possible settlement. He, he suggested there was a willingness to return to diplomacy. Was that insincere? Um, that was just completely insincere, a total lie. He has no, he's not open to any talks. And he, and for what it's worth, I, I, I've been in a, a conflict with Putin over the murder of my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, for the last 13 years. And the, the they make all these insincere statements all the time without any intention of, of doing whatever they say. It's just part of their modus operandi to say things, to confuse people, to um, to try to, to try to get the apologists, um, the Western apologists on their side saying, look, why are you supplying arms? They're ready to negotiate, etc. It means nothing. And, and one has to understand that Putin has no reverse gear. His only way is forward. His only way is to escalate. And the only way this thing is going to end is if Ukraine beats Russia, how beats can, them out of their territory. How, how concerned then, Bill, should we be to be hearing President Putin talk of this promise of a growing military cooperation with China in a bid to push back against the influence of, of the US and European allies like Britain? Well, I mean, he's, he's going to try to have a growing military alliance with anyone who would be his military ally. But what's in it for China? China doesn't get anything out of this war. This war is a, a total Russia. China doesn't want to have all of their companies sanctioned. China doesn't want to um, end up in a conflict with the West. And so and we haven't seen China supply any any military equipment to Russia. All we've seen is Russia going to Iran and going to uh, North Korea for their weaponry. And, and so I don't see it coming at all. When it comes to what's in it for China, Putin says that, that Russia is uh, is one. Bloody hell, I was muted there. So I remember Hugh Hewitt uh, reached out to me in 2004. He sent me an email. He wanted to know what I thought about imposing a tax on the pornography industry. And I said uh, he, he thought it was a good idea because you would like increase the price of, of using pornography and you'd, you'd be able to get money that you could use to good good ends. I thought it was a bad idea because it legitimates the porn industry because I found from my reporting on the porn industry that people uh, by and large regard that which is moral is that which is legal. So I found that the people in the porn industry thought that what they were doing was was moral because it was legal. And people who were all for the use of pornography were not morally bothered by the pornography industry. One of their major arguments was it is legal, therefore it is okay. So I'm not talking about high-level intellectuals here. I'm just talking about with regular people. If something is legal, they regard it, generally speaking, as okay. And so I thought that the imposition of a special tax on the pornography industry would further legitimate the pornography industry which would lead more people to using its products and more people entering the industry and frequently damaging their lives. One of the, the leaders, as he puts it, in supplying oil and gas to China. Is that what's in it for China? Well, China can get the oil and gas without supplying any weapons, and that's what they've done so far. And for what you know, the way I look at it is that um, uh, in order for them, Chinese to get more gas, it's going to take 10 to 15 years of building pipelines. You can't just um, put it on a ship and send it out. And as far as oil is concerned, we, we've also put a, a restriction on oil exports from Russia saying that um, no no ship can be insured leaving Russian ports unless they're selling oil below a certain cost. And so it's it's um, it's a tough situation for Russia. They're not going to be able to um, get their oil out to China in a way that they're going to somehow change China in, in, in any dramatic way. Chi China is getting what it can from Russia, but absolutely they're not going to supply weapons because they don't want to be on the other side of Western sanctions. On the point of supplying weapons, we've been hearing of Russian attempts to, to uh, get weapons from Iran, from North Korea. How important are those international relations to the Kremlin? Well, I mean, at the moment, uh, Russia is running out of of bullets. They're running out of bombs. They're running out of drones. They're running out of everything um, because of the sanctions. They, they don't have technology to, to make stuff. Um, they've used so much so much equipment. They've had so much equipment destroyed. And so they're desperate. For okay, I've been hearing this for months, that Russia's running out of military equipment, but they just keep sending endless amounts of missiles into Ukraine. So who's right here? Any type of, of um, uh, military hardware. 
And the only two countries in the world that will provide that hardware are the two countries that are already on everybody's sanctions list. That where there's, they have not, where, you know, North Korea and Iran have, they've got nothing to lose. They've, they're already so sanctioned that anything that, that um, they do further is not going to worsen their situation. And the only question is, do they have enough stuff to supply Russia that's going to make a difference in this war? And I think that most military analysts say no, that they're not really, um, you know, the stuff that's being provided is harmful to Ukraine. It's a, it's a pain. It's, it's difficult. The drones, for example, are coming in on a daily basis and bombing things, but they're, they're also, the Ukrainians are shooting down 70, 80, 90% of these drones now. Mm. Uh, Bill, we're speaking just days after another mysterious death of a high-profile Russian figure, the uh, sausage tycoon Pavel Antov, who was found dead at an Indian hotel two days after a friend died during the same trip. Several high-profile Russian tycoons have died in mysterious circumstances since the war began. What's going on here? Well, I think the exact number is 23 of these people have died. And, and what you have is massive infighting uh, in Russia um, as this war continues, as the economic pie decreases. And I, I don't believe that, that um, any of these people have been sanctioned because they're pro-war or anti-war or anything like that. I mean, I'm sorry, killed, not sanctioned. Um, but, but the reason why this is happening is, is that um, uh, these people are, are sitting in front of money that somebody else wants. And when the economic pie is so uh, shrinking, um, people start killing for money. And um, uh, there is just an, a sort of lawless, murderous free-for-all inside of Russia because of that. And, and I believe many, many more people will be assassinated. And by the way, these 23, is, these are just the high-profile ones. We don't know about the medium and lower-profile ones. Mm-hmm. And I, I would imagine that hundreds of people have been murdered for money in situations and conflict. Okay, that's fascinating because I was hearing that, that these oligarchs were getting murdered because they weren't supportive of the war or not. But uh, this makes more sense. They're getting murdered so that other people can take their stuff. Right? That, that makes more sense than, than they're getting murdered for not being ideologically supportive of the war. Have you heard this explanation before? It's the first time I've heard it. makes the most sense of any explanations I've heard for all these oligarchs. And Press F to remember the sausage oligarch. I mean, what a life he led. What an industry. Just imagine being known as the sausage oligarch. I mean, as, as a vegetarian, I can only imagine the, the prestige and, and the power and the status that uh, is accorded to sausage oligarchs. So now that the Russian sausage oligarch is dead, who is now the number one world sausage oligarch? Who is the sausage oligarch over all other sausage oligarchs? I don't know. When you, when you were a kid, did you dream of becoming a sausage oligarch one day when you, when you grew up? Right. Here's the distant perspective. Scott Ritter. It looked like uh, they invited the West to read it and have a serious discussion about it, and they were ignored. Um then Russia invaded Ukraine, and Russia has two objectives. One is the demilitarization of Ukraine. The other is the denazification of Ukraine. Um, demilitarization means the elimination of all NATO influence on the Ukrainian military, uh, and denazification means just that, getting rid of everything that Russia um, considers to be related to the ultra-nationalistic ideology of Stepan Bandera and the white supremacist um, manifestations of that. Now, these are words that I'm not using. I mean, people go, well, Ritter, yeah, you're very good at Kremlin talking points. I'd advise people to go back and actually read the amendments put by uh, the United States House of Representatives on Department of Defense uh, appropriations legislation from 2015 up until just this year. Um, they continuously forbid. Fun- I'm so old. Right. I'm so old. I remember when being a white supremacist was a bad thing. Like I'm so old that I remember when Nazis were considered bad. I am so old. I remember when neo-Nazis were the greatest threat to Western civilization. But we're funding these people now to the tune of, what, $80 billion? I thought white supremacists and Nazis were, were bad guys. Why are we supporting and funding them? And why is Putin the bad guy for wanting to take down Nazis and white supremacists? It sounds like this is so confusing for me. I, I thought Putin was bad. 
and white supremacists and Nazis were, were bad, but we're aiding the Nazis and the white supremacists and we're fighting Putin who's trying to make war on white supremacism and Nazism. I'm really mixed up here, guys. Funds, U.S. taxpayer funds being used to train the Azov Battalion, which is listed by the U.S. Congress as a white supremacist neo-Nazi organization. So anybody who wants to pretend that there isn't a Nazi problem in, uh, in Ukraine, simply I refer you to Congress and its own legislation. The Russians believe that this is a big problem and um, they wanted to eradicate it. Now, why did I bring this up? Because Russia hasn't shifted gears at all. <laughs> Russia's still saying we want a European security framework out of this and we are adhering to our original objectives. Russia hasn't altered course at all. Ukraine, on the other hand, um, is saying that. So you may wonder who the heck is uh, Scott Ritter? Uh, where have I heard that name before? So he was an intelligence officer with the U.S. Marines. He was, a, I think, an arms inspector. He investigated Iraq prior to the 2003 invasion. He was one of the most prominent voices against the 2003 Iraq invasion. So he was absolutely right. And all the hundreds of pundits and experts and the foreign policy elite and the media elite and the political elite of both sides of the political spectrum who promoted this war, they seem to have paid virtually no price for the, for the support of this absolutely disastrous war. And the people who are right, like John Mearsheimer, uh, Scott Ritter, uh, Steve Saylor, uh, they haven't received any benefits for being right. And then Scott Ritter got uh, convicted of possessing child porn after all this. So I'm not the most conspiracy-minded dude around, but it, it wouldn't shock me if uh, he was set up in that regard. On the other hand, maybe being being brave enough to be a distant when when you know it seems like everyone is on board with with going to war in Iraq, maybe. You know, the same person who is brave enough to, to be a dissident on Iraq. Maybe they're also somewhat antisocial. They're, they're obviously not taking their, their social cues from people in power. So maybe he was just investigating those images for intellectual, cognitive uh, reasons, just trying to increase his, his storehouse of knowledge. But I, I do have to point that out because... Much of his analysis seems incredibly level-headed. Victory can only be achieved when Russia is evicted from all territory, including Crimea. I would say that Russia is closer to achieving its objectives than Ukraine is to achieving its objectives, uh, which tells me Russia has the momentum, Russia has the initiative, and Russia has realistic objectives that can be attained. Um, Ukraine doesn't. I mean, there's just literally no one on this planet besides maybe, um, I don't even think the Ukrainians believe it, that they're going to recapture uh, the Donbass, that they're going to recapture Kherson, Zaporizhia, that they're going to recapture Crimea. Uh, this is fantasy. So you have one side that's uh, that their objectives are fantasy-based. You have another side whose objectives are, while difficult to achieve, are very realistic. Um, so I'll go with the realistic side over the fantasy side as to who I think is going to prevail. Then we take a look at capabilities. For certain, Ukraine had a good September. There's no one that's going to debate that issue whatsoever. Uh, but at what cost? And what I mean by that is in order to achieve this good September, Ukraine had to... Okay, so this interview was recorded November 4. 2022. Absorb um, billions, tens of billions of dollars worth of NATO equipment. It took months to do this. It took months to get people trained on this, to bring the equipment in, to match the equipment with the people, organize it, and bring it to the battlefield. And then in one month, Ukraine pretty much burned through everything. The casualties they've suffered have been horrific. They've lost the equipment. They've lost most of the manpower. Um, and they're down to a position now where they're begging the West to help them reconstitute this capability. Russia started September with pretty much... Okay. And so this is what all the dissidents are saying, like uh, Scott Ritter and Douglas McGregor that Ukraine just paid a horrific price in manpower, that they're out of material, 
that uh, Russia's winning the war, Ukraine's in absolutely desperate shape. So who's who's right here? I don't know. I, I don't side automatically with dissidents or the mainstream. It's the same force structure that it brought in when it invaded in, in, in February. Uh, and what had happened is uh, Russia pretty much had insufficient resources to the task they had set forth for themselves. Uh, they had many parts of their defensive line that were stretched thin. And the Ukrainians were able to exploit this, and the Russians wisely, I believe, uh, traded territory for lives. Uh, the Russians aren't in the business of just throwing away Russian lives. And so they weren't going to hold on to a strong point and defend it to the last man. Uh, they were more than happy to. Wait, uh, the mainstream media is telling you that the Russians are in the business of throwing away lives. They're just you know, throwing away Russian lives willy-nilly. They're just essentially spilling their essence all over the dusty soil and that God will make them pay for each life, Russian life, that, that can't be found. I mean, I don't know about you. From, from my perspective, every Russian life is sacred. Every Russian life is good. Every Russian life is needed in your neighborhood. I mean, let the pagans waste theirs on the dusty soil. God will make them pay for each Russian life that uh, is just spilled in vain just all over the, the dusty Ukrainian soil. So the mainstream media tells me Russia, yeah, they're just spilling their lives. They're just spilling their essence. They're, they're not denying the, the Ukrainian soil, their essence. They're just spilling Russian lives willy-nilly, just here or there, everywhere, Russian lives just being thrown away. But uh, Scott Ritter's telling me that the the Russians aren't into spilling Russian lives on dusty Ukrainian soil. So who to believe? Withdraw, trade territory, save lives, consolidate their defensive positions, all the while inflicting what should have been prohibitive casualties on the Ukrainians, tens of thousands of, of losses. Um, meanwhile, while Russia is consolidating their lines, they're reinforcing. Vladimir Putin ordered the partial mobilization. 300,000 uh, reservists have been called up. 87,000 of them are currently deployed into the special military operations zone. The rest are finalizing their organization into fresh combat units. So I have been no fap for almost for nine and a half years. And I've been in Tenem Sands with free access to unlimited amounts of aloe 98% pure gel. It soothes, it cools, and moisturizes. And when you use this appropriately, in the appropriate situations, in the appropriate parts of your body, for the appropriate reasons, there's absolutely nothing wrong with using this wonderful aloe vera. But everything can be abused. Everything can be misused. Everything can start leading you down the slippery, slidey slope towards sin and self-destruction and onanism and frittering away your life essence, just spilling it here and spilling it there. But if you achieve recovery, you will feel repelled right, from frittering away your essence and using aloe vera irresponsibly in the incorrect situation and places for the, for the wrong means and purposes, you will recoil from that possibility like from a hot stove. So I can handle having unlimited amounts of free aloe vera just, just right on hand. Anytime I can get that soothing, cooling, and moisturizing qualities of aloe vera without misusing it, without abusing myself with it, without losing my humanity, without losing my sense of self, without losing my sobriety, without losing my self-discipline, without losing 
the magnificent cathedral of a life that I have created through nine and a half years as a no-fap warrior, right? I don't lay awake at night wondering, oh, boy, my, I'd sleep a lot better if I just got some soothing, cooling, and moisturizing in inappropriate places, right? It, it's not even a temptation for me. I just, I recoil from that possibility, right? Enough said. Yeah, no fat warrior must uh, return to work. This is where I get the energy from because I'm not just dissipating it with the old aloe vera, spilling it all over the, the dusty soil of uh, Tedham Sands, right? I have reached a higher moral plane. For me, aloe vera has its time and its place, and its place is not in self-abuse. Which will give the Russians tremendous flexibility and operational capacity. So as Ukraine is shrinking its combat capability, Russia is increasing its combat capability. And then we take a look at strategic aspects of this conflict. I think the West made a mistake in um, misinterpreting Russia's soft approach to the special military operation, going in with fewer numbers than many people thought was necessary, and going in softer, not doctrinally, not using overwhelming firepower, not rolling through, uh, in effect trying to reduce civilian casualties and damage to civilian infrastructure. While the reduction... I've, I've had this problem too. I've gone into too, too many dates without enough firepower. Like I've gone in softly. I have gone in gently. I've gone into many a date respecting human rights, wanting to increase human flourishing. And, and you know what I've received for that? I've been the recipient of contempt. I've been the recipient of disrespect very much like the mainstream media and, and NATO and Joe Biden and, and Western leaders and Boris Johnson, very same way that the leaders of the Western world are treating Vladimir Putin and Russia. All right, I've experienced that at the hands of countless you know, sophisticated Jewish women who I thought would be more concerned about gender equity and human equality and human rights. Like I went in as this sensitive new age male that I am and they just had so much contempt for me. Like, I could have gone in hard. Like, I could have, so to speak, you know, seized Kiev. Like, I could have just gone stampeding after the Kiev, right? I could have, I could have been having a hell of a time in the Donbass, right? But no, I went in there respecting her, respecting me, respecting us, respecting human rights, respecting gender equity. Like, I was just this sensitive New Age male. And they had as much contempt for me as Joe Biden has for, for Vladimir Putin. And this was very confusing for me because I thought, you know, women wanted gender equity and that women preferred a guy to be a 19th century Victorian gentleman. But they treated me like I was Vladimir Putin, right? I could have seized Kiev. I could have mounted a massive attack on the Donbass. But did I do that? No, I was, I was like Mr. 613, right? I was showman McGee. I didn't even touch them. I just had respect for them, All right? I asked them about their feelings. I shared my feelings. I shared my struggles. I talked about my insecurities. I discussed my childhood trauma. And, and, and they just, they treated me like I was Vlad. They didn't treat me like Vlad the Impaler. They treated me like, like Vladimir Putin, but I could have been like Vlad the Impaler, right? But I was just overwhelmed by, by my sensitive New Age mores. And so I, I feel like Vladimir Putin is experiencing the very same things that I experienced. Like, you know, next time, 
Next time I go on a date, I, I'm just telling you, no more Mr. Nice Guy. Right? No more Mr. Sensitive, New Age Male. Like, no more. They're just all about the gender equity and the human rights. Like, see see what P- Putin's gotten for being the nice guy, trying to, to wage this war in, in a very you know moral and upstanding and, frankly, Victorian manner, just being all discreet, just not rampaging all over the Donbass, but, you know, trying to keep things civil and, you know, just fighting armies and... You know, he, he, you know, he, he gave up on just seizing Kiev. Like it was right there. Like he, he could have just grabbed Kiev by its wussy, right? He could have just like, er, grab, grab the Kiev, but he didn't grab the Kiev, right? He didn't get rampaging all over the, the Donbass, inserting himself where, where he wasn't wanted. He was like respectful of human rights. He tried to do the, he tried to mount this invasion right, in the nicest way possible. Like he tried to be kind and considerate and respect you know, civilian liberties and, and human rights and minimize suffering, right? That's the same way that I've gone into so many of my dates. I've tried to respect human rights. I've tried to be as gentle as possible, as considerate as possible, uh, like Mr. Upstanding New Age Male. And, and I just got treated like Putin. So I understand why Putin feels a little spurned now. Is oh, okay. You're not going to respect me, so so now I see something that I want. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna seize it. I'm just gonna grab it, right? I think that's what Putin's feeling now, and I understand it. I don't endorse it, but I understand it. Civilian casualties continues to be an objective of Russia. Uh, the day and age of saying we don't want to harm civilian infrastructure is over. Russia has taken the gloves off and has shown that it can close down Ukraine as a modern nation state anytime it wants to. It's degraded their electrical grid, their power grid. Uh, Ukraine has rolling blackouts, and the Russians are taking it easy. Russia could easily shut everything down, but they're not. They're making a point right now. That's me, too, with my love life. I was just taking it easy. I could have just, like, turned on the charm. I could have just, you know, made a massive charm offensive into the Donbass. But but did I do that? No, I just took it easy. I was just a respecter of all persons. They do this damage. Um, meanwhile, Russia's just functioning as, as it is, and then we take it out a step further. Because it's not just Ukraine that's suffering. You see, the West thought they were going to a, deter Russian aggression and b compel Russia to stop its aggression by imposing uh, massive economic sanctions. I think that's the word that was used: unprecedented economic sanctions. I mean, we, we were told there were masterful economists by imposing energy security that had solved the issue of how to shut down this gas station disguised as a nation. All we have to do is cut off their gas, their energy, and they're going to shrivel up and go away. Russia proved that the gas station actually knows more about global energy security than the West does. They flip the script. Russia's not the nation suffering. Europe is, is suffering. The entire continent is suffering. America's suffering. What people are talking about, we have a, a couple of weeks left of diesel fuel. I don't think people comprehend what that means when we run out of diesel fuel or we get such a shortage that the prices go through the roof. Because diesel powers the trucks that, bring, that make the supply line work, that bring food to our stores at a reasonable price. And you start jacking up the price of the cost of transportation, it will be transferred to the consumer. And if you eliminate diesel potential to where transportation is frozen, nothing makes it to market. Uh, Russia doesn't have this problem. So they've won that battle, too. So across the board, from the big picture strategic aspect of the West supporting Ukraine to Ukraine's ability to sustain the conflict to what's happening on the battlefield, it's advantage Russia, advantage Russia, advantage Russia, advantage Russia. Russia's winning this war. Call it controversial, but that's my take. Now, you, you touched upon you know, the nuclear security framework. This is a, a matter that should preoccupy us all, a matter of the utmost urgency, as I, I know you know. Uh, and the subject of nuclear war has come up repeatedly in the mainstream discourse uh, since the special military operation began. And again, the pro- predominant narrative in the West is that Russia is threatening to use nuclear weapons and its government cannot be trusted to manage its massive nuclear arsenal responsibly. But in the years leading up to the special military operation, it was the United States and not Russia that withdrew from major arms control treaties. And as you've talked about uh, oftentimes, in 2002, the Bush administration withdrew the U.S. from the anti-ballistic missile treaty. 
Uh, in 2008, the Trump administration withdrew the U.S. from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. And in that same year, the Trump administration withdrew the United States from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action with Iran, also known as the Iran Nuclear Deal. And I'd like to know your thoughts, Scott, on the importance of those treaties to global nuclear security and whether the United States government, in your opinion, had any valid reasons to withdraw from any of those treaties. <laughs> well, let's just start with, uh, with first principles. You know, here we are, 2022, um, and we have a bunch of people running around as if they've invented the concept of um, you know, nuclear security and uh, a nuclear-based um, you know, uh, muscle flexing. Uh, no, it, it, we've tried it before in the 1960s. We did the whole arms race thing. And we realized at that point in time that we'll quickly bankrupt ourselves and get nothing from it if we continue to try to build bigger and better missiles, more warheads, all this stuff. Uh, one of the first things we had to teach ourselves back then is that you can't win a nuclear war. You can't win it. Um, should never be fought. Uh, and, and that's when we embraced something that one would normally say shouldn't be embraced, the notion of mutually assured destruction. That is, if I use a nuclear weapon against you, not only will I kill you, but you're going to use a nuclear weapon against me and you're going to kill me. Um, the best way to keep mutually assured destruction alive and viable was to stop pretending that you could defend against a nuclear attack. Uh, so that was the other part of the arms race that was starting to occur. Not only were we building bigger missiles and, and stuff, we we're trying to build. Wait, 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 wait. This is so confusing. I thought Putin was the nuclear threat. I didn't think there was anything the United States might have done that uh, increased the, the, the odds of a nuclear war. But when you listen to someone like Scott Ritter, you, you start thinking, oh, maybe the United States has done some dangerous things that have increased the odds of nuclear war. I thought it was just Putin. Putin was the bad guy. And and maybe maybe there are some problems with the United States approach to nuclear weapons, but you don't really get this perspective in the, in the mainstream media. Okay, JFKRP has a show. Mister Medica goes to die. So, right on the street, Medica's got what brain cancer, one eye blind already. That uh, he's not going to see another Christmas. Uh... It led to other health complications, and he says he's going to die from the other health complications. Um, so that is, uh, it's sad because Mr. Metakar to me represents a, a whole piece of the history of the internet. To me, he is a representative of the first generation video producers of the internet, people who saw, who saw the power of the internet and who demonstrated it to everyone else. And that was before the internet was a place where normies came to pose about their in-real-life concerns. There was genuine originality to the internet culture that was developing back in the days, and Mr. Mithaker was one of those. And I was, uh, this, he may be part of the causal route that led me to, uh, to become a creator because he, they were showing how successful you could be, how viable it was, and I needed that to give me the kick. So all those people who have, who have been there before me, Sargon of Akkad, Mr. Mithaker, Drunken Peasants, to me, all of these guys were showing me, okay, you don't have to be that good. It's like you don't have to have a, a news production of the level of CNN to have success on the internet. And that was very reassuring. It was reassuring to see that these human beings who had taken their own path uh, could be successful with it. And in fact, they were giving a color to the internet. They were giving a, a different taste than everything else in life. And what we were seeing in Mr. Mithaker videos was often, in my view, Mr. Mithaker has always um, downplayed himself. That, that's always the thing that frustrated me about him. He's always presented himself as, oh, we're just, we're just kidding around. We're just uh, internet people kidding around. And to me, he was truly an anthropologist of the internet. And he was, you could see in his method, you know, he was hanging out on streams very early in the history of live streaming. He would just come to random streams with not much viewers just to see who was there, to be curious about their mind, to question people, to recruit subjects that he would eventually find interesting. He was truly an anthropologist of the human mind on the internet. And he was opened and wanted to explore the internet and at the same time gave us a, an opportunity to explore his own mind. 
uh, <clears throat> all right. So Keith Woods, uh, that that uh, I'm surprised Keith Woods is taking it. So I find uh, Mr. Medica very Im- impressive. Like he he consistently displayed considerable common sense and an ability to see things you know, about as close to objectivity as as humanly possible. So. You you got, you got a, a course in common sense when you listen to Mr. Medica. A different direction than me. Keith Woods has joined Cozy.tv. So he just started a channel there. So uh, if you like Keith Woods, you can go follow him. Um, I I think he doesn't have the kind of personality that I expect on Cozy.tv. He's probably a little more intellectual than most people there. Uh, but it's his choice. So it's totally fine with me. He has chosen to go uh, Cozy.tv alongside uh, Altype, Alex Jones, uh, all of these other people that are on there. Uh, I wish him luck. I wish him luck. Uh, Keith Woods is one of those who has been uh, affected by Twitter bannings, just like me. Spindly Opinion says, I bet he has his turtleneck with him on Cozy. Yeah, will they? Will he change his uh, clothing, or did they Did they get a special permission to wear the the turtleneck uh, on for, for, for his channel? Uh, I don't know. So those are uh, some of the last uh, moments of Mr. Mithaker on his stream. Uh, he had displayed final super chats on the screen, and here's what he was saying. You'll hear that he's crying a little bit. Maybe you think because I cover a lot of weird shit on the internet, like I'm swinging off the walls, uh, but I'm very, very laid back. My celebration would be, of course, very laid back. I'd be happy, but very laid back. And someone on Twitter added this uh, sad music onto the stream because he thought it was moving. From Hyperion9997, best wishes for the new year, everyone. Best wishes for your, uh, your new year as well. From Frank uh, Garcia, Jim, thank you for the memories. Get well. well I hope you've enjoyed all the ridiculous shit we've covered over the years. Uh, from Sleepy Hazard, here's some superberries from my favorite weatherman. Watching your forecast always put a smile on my face. All the best to you in your retirement. Wish you good health and fortune in the new year. Well, hopefully that uh, turns out to be true. Hopefully things do a turn. From Constable, thanks for all the entertainment over the years. Been much you're watching since Tumblrisms. Hope you get better. God bless. Also tell Peter he's a huge... And then there's a word that Susan won't let me say. <laughs> Peter, can you guess what word Constable wants me to call you? Now, earlier today, I did an Odyssey stream where I put out sound clips for everybody to be able to use. So they'll be able to just insert them at any moment. And I'm going to tell you what, Constable, that sound clip exists. Peter, this is a, a, a serious question. What a constable paid that dollars to have me call you? It starts with an F, and it ends with a G. From getting more or less, a fly high potato pigger, fly high. Well, thank you very much. From FedRBR, got more entertainment out of your streams than many AAA games. Really sad to see you go, especially coinciding with the end of the old wild era of the internet, as we know it. Hope you managed to beat the cancer. It is the end uh, of an era of the internet. It was different back then, and Mr. Mitaker has been successful at a time where things were different, where the internet was genuinely separate from the rest of the world. And yes, I, I do have the impression that as this generation of YouTuber dies, um, something is disappearing from the world forever because I don't think we're going to get back to it in any way. Internet culture is not a thing anymore. It's uh, You have 4chan culture, but internet culture is normie culture at this point. It is just a transposition of real-life considerations into the virtual world. Back then, it was a separate thing. There, there was If you lived moments on the internet, uh, there was no way you could talk about it to someone who wasn't on the internet. There was no way to connect on this with normies. Happy New Year. Well, the old internet is not completely dead. Like I said, and I tried to emphasize with the Keffel thing, and I really do mean this. I think of the one thing that kind of impressed me throughout the year. Honestly, uh, it's Josh winning that fight. Like, I'm, I'm legitimately um, impressed by that. A lot of people don't seem to like him. Firestarter says, I didn't like Metacar much. Tillman says, I'm just glad to see him go. <laughs> you guys are pretty rough. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I didn't consume much Metacar in my life. Uh, because there was uh, there was something of a high school attitude with it uh, that I never liked, and he was this whole downplaying of himself. Uh, he, he did it for a long time, and to me, that uh, he didn't consider himself an intellectual. So so be it. That's fine. 
but to me, he was a good human being uh, in a in a world uh, where everyone gets accused of harassment. And I, I was reading, uh, I was reading the um, the Gamergate. Uh, it was a COVID yacht, says Micronova. No, uh, it was not a COVID yacht. To the contrary, it was. Uh, he covered uh, he covered COVID among the first pe- persons on the internet to cover COVID uh, one day before I did, and I was one of the first to talk about it. Uh, so he was very quick on uh, laughing about it, and in fact, uh, his his nickname on uh, Twitter was Quarantined Coof when he got banned from his original thing. I was reading uh, the description of Gamergate on Wikipedia, and this this is shocking to me. I, I had never read that one. I, I had never searched for the Wikipedia entry of Gamergate, but I was just. Uh, I was just looking for information, and I'm just stunned because this is not how the people of the internet experienced the moments that Gamergate was. Gamergate was a loosely organized misogynistic online harassment campaign and a right-wing backlash against feminism, diversity, and progressivism in video game culture. It was conducted using the hashtag, hashtag Gamergate primarily in 2014 and 2015. Beginning in August 2014, Gamergate targeted women in the video game industry, most notably feminist media critic Anita Sarkeesian and video game developers Zoe Quinn and Brianna Wu, among others. The harassment campaign included doxing, rape threats, and death threats. Gamergate proponents stated that they were a social movement, but lacked well-defined goals, a coherent message, and leaders, making Gamergate difficult to define. Gamergaters claimed to promote ethics in video game journalism, claimed to be protecting the gamer identity, and opposed to what they asserted as political correctness in video games. Gamergaters created conspiracy theories, falsely accusing Quinn of an unethical relationship with video game journalist Nathan Grayson. This is not at all, uh, not at all uh, how I experienced Gamergate. To me, Gamergate was th- this bizarre, yes, obsession with uh, the Brianna Wu case, but more generally, it was inscribed into a, a, total, a movement of resistance against SJWism and wokeism before it was called wokeism. Wokeism penetrating the game industry. Uh, that's what it was, and it was the rise of uh, of the right wing thinking, if you will, because a lot of these people who are at the heart of Gamergate, like Sargon of Akkad, Mr. Mitaker, are not right wingers. <laughs> They're not right wingers, but they have set the stage for a resistance to the left from the center that eventually helped build uh, the right wing movement of uh, 2016, 2017. Silver Spider says, "I remember when I first go on the internet in 1997." Normal people really didn't know it existed. It was not a place for people who were not technical. Yes, there was a filtering to the origins of the internet, and we were among ourselves, and there was a... It was much... Bloody hell, I am really bad. I'm so sorry, I was just uh, muted. So, Sydney used to be... is known as the most difficult city in Australia to to make friends. Dumkov. And... Sydney is also the most diverse city in Australia. So the more diversity you have, the less people have in common. So the more difficult it is to make friends, particularly for men. So Gamergate was a reaction against the steady erosion of male-only spaces, right? If if it's okay for men to just get together with men and talk to men, right, then obviously it's a lot easier for men to make friends. Now, I disagree with J.F. Garapi that uh, the internet used to be not real life, right? The internet was always a part of real life. It's antisocial, delusional to think that uh, the internet can be separated from real life. I understand that you can say something's different from real life, and also you can simultaneously say it has these things in common with real life. So pointing out the differences between one thing and another is not to deny that there are also considerable similarities. Boy, I've really blown it twice on this live stream with uh, a rating away with 
thoughts and insights that are absolutely going to change your life. Oi, only to find that I was muted. The normies came. They started ask, asking that us be shut down <laughs> so that they could enjoy the internet without us. Uh, that, that is quite uh, ridiculous. Okay, we have some haters. <laughs> People are like, fuck you, Zoe. <laughs> Bro, this is 2023. <laughs> Relax. <laughs> But yeah, and uh, Gamergate uh, was su such glorious days that when you uh, th there was eventually a conflict between Sargon of Akkad and uh, Mr. Mitaker. And uh, one of the things that, that built on this conflict in uh, was the, the two approaches with respect to Gamergate. And Sargon of Akkad wanted and thought that he could reawaken the glory days of Gamergate. Without, you know, Sargon of Akkad was the biggest uh, political YouTuber probably for that moment. And he had all these anti-SJW Gamergate debunking videos. And he wanted to reawaken the glory days of Gamergate by doing Gamergate 2. And Mr. Mitaker had another relationship with his time in Gamergate. He, he, he wanted to get away from it. He wanted to bury it. And now he mentioned in, in his stream that as he gets buried, he would want uh, Gamergate to be buried with himself. Uh, so, yeah, uh, those were, there, there were also a moment at which the crowds of the internet were small enough to be manageable and coordinatable, coordinable, or, you know, they could coordinate. And, we we were stunned when we were seeing the power of basically a group of dedicated individuals on forums, on, on YouTube channels, and on all of these platforms basically make an event happen. See, the, the reason why it's almost, it's half funny that it's called Gamergate is that the word gate suggested that we had the power, us, the people of the internet, and I'm not including myself in Gamergate, I was not in this, but I was in this as an audience member. And it gave us the, the realization that the internet was powerful, that it was a means of human coordination that could make real things happen, that could create a gate, create an event like a gate. Uh, and that was, uh, that was the first realization that something like this could happen. And when the, the Anita Sarkeesians of this world started complaining against the backlash, complaining against the harassment, that all confirmed that it had happened, basically, that this was not just the delusions of a bunch of anonymous people on some forum, that something had happened in the real world because of the internet. Monk says, the internet isn't real. Quit telling lies. <laughs> Chi Chi Ping says, JF, do you remember Lynx, the non-graphic browser on Unix? Lynx, I've never used that, but it tells me something. I must have, I must have at some point had access to it and saw it. But I know he's always had such a childish mentality that I wouldn't be shocked to learn that he has no children, and that's a very sad thing. But see, that this is exactly what Sargon told him at some point. He, he said, you just want to be the coolest guy of the school. And he said, yes, that's what I want to be. And that, that this is so hurtful to see someone who has behind him one of the most beautiful career of the early internet, someone who should go in any hall of fame about uh, the internet. He should be in there. Uh, to see him reduce his own work to, I'm just trying to be the coolest kid in the class or in the school, that is so hurtful to me because to me, Metaker was uh, a guide, and so, a guide of the internet, a guide of the bizarrery. He would, he would go on a stream and catch some artist fascinated about a single thing, and he would make a show out of it. That, that, that was the, the beauty of Mr. Mitaker. Go away, says Jeff. Mitaker was very much a millennial in his obsession with an aversion to things he found cringe. Zoomers are post-irony now, and Mitaker couldn't keep up with this paradigm shift. <laughs> that is a nice, uh, it's a nice uh, analysis. Uh, in a way, yes, Mitaker was... In fact, I was reading his career on... I think uh, Medicare got, got crushed by deplatforming. It uh, considerably reduced his enthusiasm for making videos online. Here he is giving some advice. For Thanks for all the laughs. Merry Christmas from Moscow.
What is the most important life advice philosophy you can pass on to us? Wise man, Jim. You want, you want life advice? <laughs> you want life advice from, okay. What's the best advice I could give you? The best advice I could give you is shoot your shot, kid. Uh, you're going to have many opportunities in life uh, to get ahead and do well. And uh, something's going to hold you back. You're going to be shy about it, or you're going to doubt yourself, or you're going to think that uh, you can't succeed, or you'll be embarrassed, uh, or some something's going to get in the way. And it'll probably be purely psychological, uh, either imparted onto you by somebody else telling you you can't do it, or yourself because you doubt yourself. So my best advice is just take the fucking opportunity, even if you fuck it up. That would be, that's my life advice. Shoot your shot. Uh, that and always keep laughing. You can do those two things. You're going to do very well. You're going to get ahead. You're going to do fine. <laughs> you just got to you just gotta stay focused. Uh, do the best you can do and uh, have a giggle from time to time. From Musco. So I found Medica impressive for his common sense. So common sense doesn't come naturally to me. I you know, tend to be like way too self-obsessed or way too lost in theory. But I was always incredibly impressed with, with Medica's ability to capture things, you know, reasonably objectively, about as close to objectively as you could hope, hope someone to do. He had an excellent feel for uh, human psychology, the, the status games that we play. He was excellent at puncturing, you know, pseudo profound BS. He was excellent, excellent at puncturing people's delusions about themselves and about the, the world. He, he was an absolute master at what he did. And I never recall him being defeated in, in any debate. I, I never recall him being delusional. On the career description on YouTube fandom, and they were saying, uh, they were saying that he, he started a club of the enjoyers of year 2K, the nostalgics of year 2K. <laughs> <laughs> and that is so that is so him and in a way i can understand you know uh you cannot enjoy 2023 as much as the, the 2010s at least if not the 2000s uh, in terms of internet phenomenon it, it is just uh, outclassed linux poo says haha yes metacare has been dying for five years now and he's still outlasting the vaccines <laughs> yes he's had uh, i had announced his death about uh, one year ago and he's still not dead and it's like bro uh the like died suddenly is the current thing give us some suddenly here not just the dying just give us some suddenly so that we can say something like mr metaker died suddenly but no we can't because from an seo perspective okay let's uh have a look oh boy let's have a look at uh mr medica's walrus lalbertarian whoops forget it see mr metaker from an seo perspective if you could die a little faster, that would be absolutely appreciated. Thomas says, you know what helped his success, JF? The joyful, always positive attitude. You could tell he was smiling behind that $20 mic. Yes, uh, it is It is kind of a mystery how, how uh, Jim got that level of success to me. Still, still a mystery to me. Because I can understand that someone, uh, that someone with... Uh, with kind of, who hangs out in these harassment circles and these uh, gay ups circle, I would say. Not that I, I want to accuse Mr. Mitaker of organizing gay ups, but it was heavily chilling. Okay, here is the chronology of uh, Medica's health problems. You might not believe it, Jim, but you're an internet legend. 
uh, may die, but you'll never be forgotten. Best wishes to you and yours. Merry Christmas from Joe Rowe. Can you tell us what your Can you tell us what were your early symptoms? Thank you. <laughs> you want to you medically diagnose me? I don't, yeah, I don't give a shit. I'll walk you through it. Oh, Joe Rowe, buckle up. You're going to love this. Let me walk you through. I've, I've even got a fucking list here from the last time I had to go in to see the neurologist. Let me walk you through my early symptoms. Let me just walk you through the, the timeline progression of shit. <laughs> so maybe, maybe you can figure out what parasite this might be. Uh, so I had a biopsy done on a tumor on my, my head, the back of my head. And they came back with B-cell lymphoma. So then they went to do the staging for it, which, in, you know, is uh, imaging like a PET scan. They did blood work. And that came back, and they found that there was a, a benign growth on the pituitary. They also found out that my uh, thyroid lit up, so they did more testing. And then uh, diagnosed that as Hashimoto's. And at the time, they said that's, that's not, you know, entirely unexpected. People like cancer sometimes get autoimmune diseases. It's, you know, it happens. Uh, the Hashimoto's isn't running crazy at the moment, so we should be able to control it. And we'll just, we'll deal with the cancer. All right, everything sounds great. We're going we're gonna to do a workup for the cancer, but, you know, we need to do a few more testing. We'll do a bone marrow biopsy, um, you know, and uh, they did that, came back, okay. So they're like, okay, well, we're going to send you down to uh, oncologist, radiologist, whatever the fuck it is, um, and talk about how we're going to approach it. So, you know, that's like the first month or two. And, you know, everything is kind of progressing okay-ish. Uh, and then everything starts going tits up. Suddenly I go hypertensive. Like, massively fucking hypertensive. So I had normal blood pressure, and suddenly it's like 140 over 90, and it's solidly there. And at first the doctor's like, oh, well, this might be like a, what do they call it, a white coat syndrome, white lab coat syndrome. You know, because you're in another hospital, you're anxious because of the cancer shit, you're anxious, so it's going to make your blood pressure rise. Uh, but it stayed consistently there. So then they're starting to debate, do we want to put them on, um, you know, some kind of like uh, blood pressure medicine? You know, they, this is all going on in the background. Uh, then, out of nowhere, total loss of fucking appetite. And I must have lost between 40 to 50 pounds. And it just dropped off, and it wasn't even like um, not wanting to eat, it was just it was like there was no signal telling me I need to eat. It was like my appetite was like, I don't need to eat anymore. I had to be fucking reminded. So I'm looking at like shit like Pediasure and like these different protein shakes because it's like, I've got to do something. This is fucking crazy. Um, then I start having like these just horrific fucking pains uh, kind of up by the diaphragm, right? Drop me down to my knees. Uh, some of the worst pain I've ever experienced. First time it happened, it was like 10 minutes long. And I thought, you know, is this something like some weird kind of, um, is this some kind of weird fucking, uh, I don't know, like stomach acid thing or... I didn't know what the fuck it was, but it went away. So I figured, okay, you know, maybe it's related to like the loss of appetite. We're talking to a gastroenterologist, gastroenterologist figure out what the fuck it is. Uh, then it happens again, except this time it doesn't go away. So I end up going to the hospital and uh, they do imaging tests and the pancreas is swollen. Uh, they check the lipase levels and it's supposed to, I think on like their scale, it's like between 100 and 300 is normal. And it's like 18,000. And so he's like, uh, the, the ER doctor's like, you're having an acute pancreatic attack. Um, you know, this is going to take a while to go away. We're going to have to hospitalize you. You'll be here for maybe a week or two, maybe three. Um, as he's explaining this, after they do I'm there for like an hour, the pain just stops. Just stops, goes away completely. Um, so I'm like, I, well, I didn't want to stay. I was like, well, if it's if it stops, I'm fucking out of here. Like, I don't want to be in the hospital. This is right at, you know, all this COVID shit's going on. I don't want to be in the middle of the hospital. <laughs> and like at ground zero for that shit, um, the ER doctor got angry about that, whatever. Went to my primary the next day, they re-ran the lipase, and it was completely, uh, it was on the low end of normal. So it went from 18,000, this fucking ridiculous high number, down to nothing. Um, so, you know, I mean, things started kind of getting weird from that point on. It was around this point that the doctors started getting concerned. There was some weird shit happening. Um, because I had like this, this jaw pain that started extending up into my ear. Um, then I started losing hearing, uh, got tinnitus, uh, the pain extended up into my eye. I lost control of my eye. Um, you know, have like, you have four different muscle groupings that control your eyeball. Right. And it was like, somebody cut them all. The eyeball is just free floating. This one day I look in the mirror, my eyeball is just floating everywhere. Pupils not dilating correctly. It's doing the opposite of what it should be doing. Going to the ER and he said, oh, this, you know, we don't know what's going on. What did he call it? He said, this is, this is, this might be outer ocular palsy is what he said. I said, well, you know, am I having a fucking stroke? Is this like, uh, you know, am I going to go retarded? Is this the start of a stroke? Well, no, you, you know, having a stroke that only affects the eye would be, you know, that, that's just so, that, I've never heard of that before. And it's like, well, you know, I haven't heard of 30-year-olds getting fucking lymphoma, right? That's rare to begin with. So how do we make sure I'm not having a fucking retard stroke? So he's like, oh, we'll do, uh, I think they did a CTA or an MRA or some fucking thing like that. And then he comes back and he's like, okay, well, maybe it's not otorocular palsy. Uh, your retrieval artery is dissected and you've got a pseudoaneurysm on the right side. And also another dissection on the left side in your neck. And so this could be a trans attack. You might have had a mini stroke. Oh, oh, okay. Well, what do I do? Well, you take a baby aspirin. <laughs> okay, doc. 
So I take the baby aspirin. Uh, the eye thing eventually does resolve. I get control over it again. Uh, weirdly enough, the hypertension goes away, which makes no sense because aspirin shouldn't have a fucking effect on it. So, I mean, like, you know, all this is kind of going on. Then right after that, I lose more of my hearing. You know, and I'm going into the ENT repeatedly. Uh, and they're doing like this, this, they got like this diagram where they check the fucking hearing. It's around this time that I'm, I'm doing internal medicine up at Mayo. So they're sending me around to all the specialists. The gastroenterologist is up there and he says, it's not an acute pancreatic attack. Whatever this is, is something that mimics that, but I guarantee you it's not. You know, I see the hearing guy and he's like, well, it could be, it could be, uh, what the fuck, labyrinthitis in your ear, autoimmune labyrinthitis or um, autoimmune inner ear disease. Uh, they checked a different, uh, like antibody shit for uh, Kogan's. Uh, they didn't think it was Meniere's because I didn't have any of the vertigo. So I'm getting this big workup. They're doing all this shit. They come back to me and they say, well, we don't really know what's going on. Uh, we're looking at your IG levels, and they're all fucked up. We're looking at T-cell stuff, and it's all fucked up. They check me for JAK2 mutation. They don't understand it. Um, so, you know, they want to put me in something called Diagnostic Odyssey and Genomics and have me genetically tested to try to figure out what's going on. Okay. Oh, you know, fine. Um, then, you know, it just keeps progressing. Then I start losing sensation in my legs. You know, it's, it's on each side of the legs all the way into the feet. So they're like, well, I mean, we put them on prednisone. Is this prednisone-related neuropathy? So they start checking for, like, diabetes and other stuff. Everything's coming back fine. The guy that does the fucking uh, the nerve conductivity test, whatever the fuck it's called, where they stick a little thing in you and check the nerve in the, the body, comes back and says, um, oh, this is weird. <laughs> were you beaten? The guy asked me, were you, were you like in a fight or something? Why are you asking me that? Well, you know, we do this test to see if it, like, you know, if the, the pattern or some shit, you know, matches up with a disease we might think it is. And, you know, we're showing there's dysfunction, but um, it, it, it's like the dysfunction we're seeing doesn't really, it's, it's weird. He actually told me we think the machine might be broken because it's weird. It shouldn't be acting like this. Okay, well, that's fucking great. That's, it's always good to hear they're having weird fucking results. Then on top of that, start getting skin infections, like staph infections, which makes no sense. Hypertension comes back, only now it's 150 over 100, so they put me on blood pressure shit. Losing more sensation as different nerves are starting to get fucked up in the body. Um, and it just, it just go, it goes on and on. Then there's a growth in my throat, I have to go to the ENT. So, you know, that's where I'm at. So it's just, it's one thing after another. It's, it's one more thing after another. It's go see a fucking specialist, come up with a game plan. They don't know what the fuck it is, go see another specialist. They do all these specialized blood tests. What was it this chick said? I'll, I'll read you the exact fucking thing. Oh, exactly what she said. Uh, the condition that I would recommend assessing uh, through immunology is CDT cell receptor complex disorders causing immunodeficiency MHC1 cla- or MHC class 1 deficiencies. Well, what does that mean? And then she's like, well, it's something like lymphocyte. All right. And then the neurologist is like, well, we should test you for something called, um, oh, my God, small fiber neuropathy. So we need to do a biopsy. And then another guy's like, well, we need to check your spine because, you know, we've, we've, we've noticed a weird kind of shit going on in your spine. Some kind of growth. So, we want to take a look. so I've got all this fucking growth shit going on. And the ENT is looking at the throat. And they're like, well, we don't think that's cancer. We think that's, you know, that maybe that's a cyst or something. Maybe we want to biopsy that. We don't know. So they all want to cut me up and take samples. So you're asking, can you tell me, <laughs> can you tell me my symptoms? All I know is the moment I had that biopsy, and I'm not placing it on the doctor, the guy that did it, the dermatologist or whatever uh, that did it was a great doctor. Like, fantastic job. Did a fucking bang up job. But the moment they cut that fucking tumor out, my body went apeshit. And I don't know why. And I don't know what it relates to. I think that's why they wanted to test perineal plasty syndrome. Um, you know, so they're, they're all throwing shit out there. Everybody's throwing shit out there. All these specialists want to do all these specialized tests because they've all got, like, what is it? What's going on? Your IG levels are all fucked up. We don't understand it. IgG subclass. You know, uh, another thing I fucking loved was dealing with hematology and everybody because you try to, like, track down a disease. And he's like, well, you know, if it was IG subclass 1 and 3 or subclass 2 and 4, we can match that up with, with stuff. But your IgG level, specifically, it's subclass 2 and 3 that's completely fucked. And IgM er, is completely fucked. Um, and it's just, I, I don't know, man. It's just, it's, it's a never-ending fucking, <laughs> it's just never-ending. Uh, so, I'm sorry. Now I'm going on a tirade. There you go, though, bro. <laughs> there you go there, bro. So you can, uh, I, I don't know. There you go. Let me, let me crowd, crowdsource a diagnosis. Any geniuses out there want to take a crack at it? There you go. That's, that's the basic progression. Give or take a few things. <laughs> Somebody- well, he's been incredibly courageous, uh, staring down death r- right in the eye, maintaining good humor, able to participate in, in debates, talk about all this openly. I mean, of all the, the major 
dissident uh, internet personalities, he has to be uh, among the most stable. So do you remember after 9-11, we heard a lot about the great threat of Islamo-fascism? And the right was concerned about Islam, not, not just as a law enforcement matter, not just you know, keeping a focus on those who might be terrorists and do acts similar to 9-11 or what happened in Great Britain in, in 2007, but we're in a clash of civilizations. So the Bush administration could have chosen to deal with 9-11 as a law enforcement matter. And I'm just seeing tremendous parallels to how the left is reacting to the alt-right and white nationalism, right? It's not primarily a law enforcement matter. It's a clash of civilizations. So just as in Ukraine, we're not seeing the tragedy of great power politics, which would be the John Mearsheimer realist approach. We are seeing the battle of good versus evil, autocracy versus democracy. And at home, Joe Biden says the reason he became convinced he needed to run for president in 2020 was due to Charlottesville, right? And so the left, the Democratic Party, the liberals, the, the dominant elites in the mainstream media and academia, they don't want to react to alt-right violence or to white nationalism or to the Proud Boys or to far-right violence as a law enforcement matter. They want to treat it as a spiritual cancer that they want to cut out of the body politic, just like the Republicans under George W. Bush, they wanted to treat 9-11 not as a law enforcement matter, right? not as a reason to become much more selective about who we allow to enter this country, not as a reason to close down our borders, not, not as a reason to start uh, you know, profiling people based on more or less obvious signs that uh, they could you know, create uh, mass havoc. no it had to be transformed into a, a clash of civilizations, supposedly that the, the, the Muslims like Osama bin Laden, supposedly they hate our freedom, which is nonsense. Osama bin Laden gave the reasons why he attacked the United States. One, was the U.S. support for Israel. Two, was the U.S. support uh, American troops on holy Saudi Arabian soil. And so another reason that... Uh, so many of the, the more fundamentalist Muslims hated the United States was America's sexual decadence. So it wasn't our love of freedom, all right? They had very concrete reasons, in particular to do with the U.S. support of Israel over the Palestinians. So many people on the right didn't want to look at 9-11 and other Islamic terrorism as a law enforcement matter. They wanted to make it a big cultural issue. They wanted to make it a moral crusade. They wanted to make it an ideological crusade. And so you started hearing terms like Islamo-fascism, and you got all these you know, plethora of books about how Europe was lost because of widespread Islamic immigration. So that w was a perspective that started to become more pragmatic because whatever your politics, you don't want the immigration of people who are very likely to lean in the very opposite direction of your politics or your culture. So you'll even hear lefties saying, oh, being concerned about Islamic immigration because these people might want a religious autocracy instead of democracy, that's a legitimate concern. And even lefties will say that's a legitimate concern to be concerned about the immigration of those who don't have democratic values, who are looking to supersede or overthrow or overthrow or 
subvert our, our democracy. That's a legitimate reason to be concerned about immigration. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, that's the only legitimate reason, according to people on the left, to be concerned about Islamic immigration and other forms of immigration, because you're concerned that it might reduce the liberal human rights focus of our state. It might be bad for gay rights. It, it might be bad for our democratic values. Right? It might be bad for this you know, liberal system that we've, we've built up. Then it's appropriate to be concerned about Islamic immigration in particular and uh, immigration in general. That's when it's okay to be concerned about religiosity, right? So if we are in danger of having our liberal pro-gay democratic values and practices and rituals reduced or subverted or undermined or compromised, right, then it's okay to be concerned about some demographic groups or some religious groups or immigration. That's, that's the only time, just off the top of my head, that, that the, the modern left says it's A-OK to be concerned about uh, immigration and uh, multiculturalism. So you are going to hate this, but I'm going to play it anyway, and we're going to talk about it. It's... Uh... Hello there, dear listeners. OK, you like it already? All right, this is a podcast interview with uh, Chris Cavanaugh, Decoding the Gurus, and the show is called Polite Conversations. It's by a woman on the left, right? And so she's uh, raised a Muslim, so I assume that she's an atheist. I assume that she's a feminist. She's very much on the left. Her critique of Decoding the Gurus is that they are too centrist, and so she is much more on, on the left, but uh, pretty interesting conversation. They are particularly fixated with uh, Sam Harris. Oh, so so of course it's, it's gonna it's gonna crash just as just as I'm queuing it up. Man, trying to run a high quality show with, with good quality audio, and uh, this is what I get. Right, let me pull it together here. The chat V is a doctor. Oh, yeah, that would be ironic if V comes in to save me. Here comes V to save the day. You know, one of the uh, uh, problems, uh, Joe Rowe, uh, that I run into is <clears throat> you set up, uh, you get something diagnosed and everything's set to go. And you got to remember, too, a lot of this is going on during COVID. So you get, a, you get everything set up to go. And then um, something new pops it's, up. But it's kind of regrettable that so, people have uh, to go to that length to, to, to demonstrate that, something which seems like it should you be know, obvious just from looking at the thumbnails on his <laughs> YouTube channel, you know, but, but it, it isn't. For lots of people, so... Uh... Okay, talking about uh, Tim Pool here. This is the, the conversation between an ex-Muslim woman, lefty, with Chris Kavanaugh, who sent a letter. Yeah. Sam releases a his take on Joe Rogan. <laughs> and then you, you kind of feel like, okay, I've got all these... I want to mention this point, you know, and maybe you don't need to, but it, it feels like you're not doing it justice if you don't... Um, if you don't cover it. So, yeah, we, we definitely lean towards keeping more stuff in, which is, uh, yeah, I, you know, your mileage on that may, may vary, but um, I think it's in our nature as academic type people to, to be long-winded. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not an academic at all, and uh, I can still relate because I have trouble cutting things down as well because I think it's also a bit just to do with these this whole IDW sphere. It's, there's a lot of slipperiness happening, and it's hard to pin down things unless you have a lot of wider context around it. Yeah, I, I spoke recently to... 
So it's interesting listening to these two lefties critique the IDW sphere, right? The intellectual dark web, which from a right-wing perspective, it's a bunch of you know lefty cucks who just aren't uh, completely mainstream. But we did see with, with COVID, what well, at least half of the intellectual dark web, you know, took uh, dissident perspectives on public health responses to COVID. I, I'm sure you're familiar with um, Timba on Toast. Mm-hmm. He makes like YouTube videos. He did a good one on Dave Rubin, and I think it was a seven-part series on James O'Keefe. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and he's currently doing a series on Tim Pool. And when we talk to him, you know, you would imagine like debunking Tim Pool. You know, what's the, the debunk? He's a he's a cretin. Yes. Like, you know, like he's yeah. a he, he's a really stupid guy. But for to kind of highlight even how somebody like him is being duplicitous and, you know, presenting themselves as one way and so on. It took him like months and months of collating the clips, you know, and then mm-hmm. editing. And his videos are very effective, but it's it's kind of regrettable that people have to go to that length to demonstrate something which seems like it should be obvious just from looking at the thumbnails on his <laughs> YouTube channel, you know, but, but it, it isn't for lots of people. So, um, yeah, I think this is something that many people find when they're trying to debunk that the amount of effort to highlight what people are doing is much greater than the people can kind of spew out their talking points, like, you know, James Lindsay style. Yeah, yep, yep. Uh, and Sam Harris style also, but... Uh, yeah, in, indeed. And, in you know, the, um, in, I know, I, I, I'm sure we'll, we'll get onto it, but in the conversation I had with Sam, um, and I, I listened to your conversation in preparation before, I listened to a bunch of conversations, actually, but um, he, you did a better job than I did of Sam kind of goes on extended monologues mm-hmm. for, you know, a lot. And, and he'll put in a whole bunch of, of points and in response to a question, which are kind of not really related, but they raise different issues. So I see a lot of similarities between Sam Harris and Stefan Molyneux. It's an unbelievable amount of self-obsession, self-delusion, kind of refusal often to answer a question, uh, to just go on in these lengthy monologues when, when they're asked a question. So do you... Do you see a similar lack of of common sense and a similar wordiness and a similar detachment from reality and a similar living in delusion? Uh, Sam Harris, Stefan Molyneux, uh, both do some good work, both do some bad work, and just they just strike me as very similar personalities. They've definitely got the gift of the gab, they definitely got charisma. They can definitely command an enormous audience. They're definitely very good at what they're doing, but they are, neither of them are optimized for truth. And both seem to just have inordinate self-regard and delusion about the importance of what they're doing. I played a Stefan Molyneux clip yesterday where he talked about how his work had prevented millions of children from being abused. Like his work prevented millions of children from being abused. And and Sam Harris claims that you can't understand his politics, you can't understand his worldview unless you meditate, right? Unless you experience the gifts of meditation, you can't possibly understand his disengaged strategic perspective on the world, on, on politics. It just incredibly charismatic, glib, wordy, uh, very good, very talented at what they're doing, very compelling personalities, able to develop enormous followings, but inordinate self-regard and and just frequently completely delusional. Stefan Molyneux, Sam Harris. And then when it comes 
it's your, ch- you know, your point where you have a chance to speak, you're kind of like, okay, well, there's eight things I need to respond to there, but I've only got, <laughs> you know, two minutes before I'll have to hand back. So yeah, that, that, that's frustrating. Yeah. It's like a gish gallop technique kind of. Yeah. And I, I will say I haven't been on the receiving end of that that much from, you know, I've been interested in conspiracy theories and so on, but I haven't, I don't, I haven't debated conspiracy theories or, or conspiracy theorists or creationists like in a audio format. And and that's, it, it's surprisingly difficult <laughs> to deal with um, when you are experiencing it firsthand. So as I say, when I listen to your interview, I think in part because you were more willing to, you know, uh, like interrupt and say, no, 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 that's not, that's not the point I'm making. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that, uh, I, I wasn't particularly effective at that, but uh, yeah. Well, I am just a crazy woman, right? So. That's your advantage. <laughs> but I, don't, <laughs> I don't think that I, I am excluded from the criteria of like unhinged critics in, in Sam's perspective. But <laughs> You think? But maybe... I'm not quite in the, the pantheon that you've reached. You, Ezra Klein, and Robert Wright mm. are seemingly, like, you know, mortal enemies. <laughs> and Glenn Greenwald as well. Yeah, one of the stunning things about uh, Sam Harris is how he perceives, like, the mildest criticisms as some, you know, enormous affront. Does not deal well with, with criticism. Uh, takes it, you know, very personally. Has has hyperbolic response to criticism. Though... Not to the extent of Lex Friedman. Lex Friedman just automatically blocks anyone from his Reddit, from social media, for, for the mildest of criticisms. So I'd place probably Lex Friedman probably four times, five times more sensitive than to Sam Harris, who still has this incredible, thin-skinned, hyperbolic reaction to the mildest of criticisms. <laughs> yeah, well, so Ezra Klein has the intellectual and moral integrity of the KKK, if I'm remembering correctly. That's what he said about uh, Salon and Vox. Yeah. Writers. I'm I'm meeting the the same level of demagoguery and dishonesty and cynicism and just mere gamesmanship on the left, you know, much, much closer to to where, you know, we all are living. Like, so it's like just interacting with a reporter from, you know, Salon or or Vox, right? Like, like, like who's, who's there? I'm meeting someone who essentially has the intellectual and moral integrity about the guy in the white hood, Mm -hmm. you know, over on the right. And that asymmetry is, uh, is just totally alarming to me. Yeah. So I know, so we'll just do a couple of minutes on politics and shift to some stuff. So slightly hyperbolic, (laughs) yes. Just a tad, um, especially when, you know, Nazis are nowhere and the KKK is nowhere and it's all extremely fringe. It's just bizarre that there would be so many Nazi-like people all over Vox and uh, Salon. And I'm just crazy. Yeah, yeah. There's a, I, I watched, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, um, the, it's on the BBC, but Louis Ferrou has a new series and he, his first episode was about oh, basically you know, the new manifestation of the alt-right, um, mm. uh, Nick, Nick Fuentes and Beat Alaska and all that. And, you know, it looks very, very familiar and the fringe of the fringe seems to have a significant audience um, and one that, you know, reaches into the Republican Party or, or the right wing institutions in the U.S. quite far. So, right. so yeah, I, I just feel that, like, maybe watching some of those documentaries might be helpful. Louis Ferrou's documentaries are entertaining as well, so maybe somebody could forward it to Sam. <laughs> Do you think, really, it's about not knowing or just not accepting? Because, I mean, he does say things like, you know, they are fringe of the fringe apart from... So, upon reflection, I see white nationalism, Islamofascism, or you know, radical Islam uh, as primarily issues for, for law enforcement. I, I don't believe that the, the best approach to either is some form of ideological warfare. And so I just want to know who's you know, most likely, who is the most at risk to do antisocial, dangerous things? And let's deal with it on a 
law enforcement level. I, I don't think we need to go on a jihad against Islam. I don't think we need to go on a jihad against certain types of ethnic nationalism, right? I don't think we need to you know, go on a, a jihad against you know reactionary thinking, right? Just treat it as a law enforcement issue. Those people who are most likely to commit you know, massive disruptions to the public order, then we should have law enforcement tracking them. But those people who are not a massive threat to the, the public disorder, right, that there's less need to track them and to infiltrate their gatherings, let alone go on any sort of cultural or ideological crusade against them. So that wasn't necessarily initially my, my view post 9-11. I, I think I, I got caught up with this is a civilizational war. To, to varying degrees, I may have believed that. So I, I think I probably got caught up with it's just more exciting that we've got a civilizational conflict rather than just a law enforcement matter. I was not supportive of the 2003 invasion of Iraq. I, I think I did at the time think that the invasion of Afghanistan made, made sense in 2001. Uh, the whole Islamic fascism thing, I I was curious about it. I, I did detect the, the glimmerings of, of a more rational immigration policy. Like, why would we want to import people who are highly likely to want to hurt us or who are not going to uh, be more of a blessing? So I think it's absolutely normal and healthy to react to groups, you know, based on what are their likely contributions and subtractions from wider society. Like, are they likely to contribute more in taxes than they take out in social welfare spending? Are they likely to have disproportionate rates of, of crime? Are they going to be a blessing to my community, to my shopping center, to, to my nation? And are, are they going to be dislocating? Also, just the presence of people who have a very different hero system from you is painful and threatening because it, it forces you to confront the possible fictional nature of your own hero system. So many of these people on the left, such as Chris Kavanaugh and uh, the Polite Conversations female host, right, they would present themselves as being for human flourishing and harm avoidance. But what is the harm that they want to avoid? It's primarily the harm of ignorance and bigotry and racism. right? I would think if you're a Christian and people are deny the that Jesus is the Christ, that you would experience that as a real flesh and blood harm akin at times to even being punched in the stomach because your hero system, your value system, the edifice upon which you build your life is being demeaned and, and challenged. Like, why would you not experience that as a form of harm? If you're an Orthodox Jew, why would you not experience it as a form of harm if someone denied that God was the, in the final analysis, the author of the Pentateuch? So whatever your hero system is, if it's a dedication to fighting global warming, anyone who denies or challenges your most sacred, sacredly held holy beliefs, all right, is going to be inflicting harm on you because they are essentially verbally assaulting your hero system. So that's another problem with diversity. It, forces people to confront the, the possibly fictional nature of their hero system and the sacrifices that they make 
because they believe that there's a certain moral order, there's a certain order in the universe that they want to fit into when you're confronted by all sorts of people subscribing to a different sense of order in the universe, it's going to you know, make you question your own most deeply held beliefs and the things that you hold sacred. So Jonathan Haidt makes this point that ties bind and blind, right? When you feel bonded to someone else, it's going to blind you and that anything you hold sacred, you can't look at objectively. And so the presence of multiple hero systems, multiple religions, all right, is going to challenge your own religion, your own hero system, and make you uncomfortably aware of the possibly fictional nature of what you hold sacred. So these are a couple of people on the left, but uh, I find their conversation quite interesting. I think another thing that distinguishes this show from other distant shows is that I welcome truth from anywhere. I mean, Adolf Hitler may have spoken truth. Some of the Poverty Law Center may have spoken truth. Joseph Stalin may have spoken truth at times. Chairman Mao. Uh, sometimes Southern Poverty Law Center releases you know, deeply researched uh, pieces on uh, you know, the rise of the alt-right. And so sometimes their information is quite accurate, even if I think their ideological slant is, is biased and unfair. So welcome truth from any source. I would think that that's one of the, the, the founding bedrocks of uh, this show. Right, Chris Cavanaugh here talking with the host of Polite Conversations. Capturing the presidency. Yeah, I, I, I cannot square the, the, the logic of that kind of statement very clearly, but I also think <laughs> there is a degree of willful uh, blindness because, for example, when I brought up Tucker Carlson with Sam and what he's doing on Fox News. Well, we are all willfully blind. That, that's what happens when you have a hero system and it's a biological necessity to have a hero system because when you have a hero system, you're able to subscribe to practices, to an in-group, to, to an ideology, to a community, to a nation that will live beyond you so that you then become eternal because you're part of this eternal group. And so belonging to, to an in-group will always blind you, all right? So life experiences will blind you to things uh, hormone levels, you know, physical discomfort. If you're free and easy in your body, you, you'll you probably be less empathic to those who are you know, struggling with all sorts of unnecessary muscular tension and compression and distorting you know, bad, destructive physical habits. So we're all blind. It, it isn't just uh, something that uh, Sam Harris experiences. Uh, reality is so much more complex than we can possibly comprehend we, we can just kind of get glimmerings of uh, objective reality. He was very quick to say, you know, I don't, I don't watch Tucker. I don't know um, his content, so I can't really comment on that. But I mean, mm. I don't live in the U.S. I don't watch Fox, but I, I see the same clips everyone else does on social media. And it's not hard to see what mm -hmm. Tucker's doing. And it's uh, so I, I find, you know, if you ask, is Sam being honest when he says that? I, I, it's hard for me to tell if he is being you know, willfully blind to that or that he, you know, that he is extending charity in an ex extremely uneven manner towards people that are the targets of left-wing criticism, um, because that seems to be a recurrent pattern. So, uh, yeah. Right. Well, from your conversation with him. It's so what strikes me about the intellectual dark web, it is not primarily united by ideology or coherence or you know, certain epistemic uh, practices. It's primarily united by attention-seeking. And so 
that uh, most of the intellectual dark web would go on to hold all these dissident views about public health responses to COVID is not surprising because that's where the clicks and the views and the money was in going with a dissident perspective. So I think we often look at podcasters and live streamers primarily through the lens of ideology when it would be much more fruitful to look at them through the lens of attention-seeking or optimizing views, clicks, income, and being willing to kind of go where your audience wants to go rather than any particular intellectual commitment. Seems like you did have your mind kind of made up about him having a very imbalanced perception yeah. of yeah, I mean, the, these things. Like It is. Right? It is a very clear pattern. And you played the clip from my conversation with him in 2016, pointing out the troubling uh, stuff with Gad and Ruben, to which he responded, you know, that I just must be mistaken because <laughs> they are extremely ethical people with a very journalistic <laughs> agenda. And, yeah. Um, I, I mean, the thing that surprised me about... So anyone who talks about uh, Dave Rubin or God's side, these are you know very ethical people, is is completely delusional, not because Dave Rubin and God's side are particularly bad people, but no one is very ethical in all spheres of, of life. At most, our ethical commitments are domain-specific, right? So you may have an accountant who is very ethical in the way he practices his accounting, that doesn't mean he's ethical in the way he treats his children, his neighbors, or his spouse. Right? Someone may treat his family very respectfully, but treat outgroups in a disgusting fashion. Uh, some people may be brave in certain circumstances, such as on you know YouTube live streams. But when face to face, you know, confronted with with something, they may completely shy away. So nobody is ethical in all domains. Nobody is ethical in all situations. We all have our strong points ethically and morally. We all have you know, situations where we're upstanding. And we all have situations where, frankly, we are disgusting. So anyone who stands up and says, oh, this person, highly ethical person, right, is delusional, completely out of touch with reality. The best you can say is that in certain domains, you know, this person from you know, my experience it is ethical, but we don't see people realistically. We usually just see people in one or two spheres of life, and then we simplify them and extrapolate the, what they're really like just from our own limited interactions because it's too painful for us to deal with the complexity and the moral nuance and the contradictory nature of what it means to be human and how we are nice in this circumstance and we're ugly in that circumstance. So, you know, Sam Harris, you know, talking up, you know, Dave Rubin as some model of intellectual honesty, moral rigor, you know, good ethical fiber is, of course, absolutely absurd, not because, you know, Dave Rubin is particularly heinous, but uh, because Dave Rubin is a human being whose ethics are domain specific like the rest of us. That was partly what I anticipated, probably naively, was that, you know, when faced with kind of criticism, pointing out some of these issues and, and blind spots that Sam might take the opportunity to moderate his position and to mention, you know, that he, he had made some mistakes or, or, or judgments that, you know, now he would regret and he, he should have spotted the warning signs. But but that wasn't the, the way that he responded. And um, <laughs> he, when it came to, you know, the fact that you, it, when I listened to that episode, because I'd heard you on your content mention, you know, that you didn't want to go back and listen to it because it was a number of years ago and yeah. you might feel, you know, a bit uncomfortable, about, you know, being charitable. To, to Sam, given the, what you've documented since then. But when I went back and listened, I was, because uh, I hadn't heard it the first time around, I think, and 
I was really impressed that you know, even though you you were being you know uh, polite and, and and nice to Sam, you you still really clearly laid out the problems, and you didn't you know back down whenever he issued the points about his kind of standard rebuttal about it. You know, you were saying, but I've I've laid out to you the kind of people that they're platforming, the kind of things they're saying. So why would you not acknowledge that now? And it it struck me that when a lot of people talk about um, these kind of issues like Brett Weinstein or whatever, they kind of present it as if there were not people making reasonable critiques and right, highlighting these issues clearly. Right? It's always presented as it was like the extreme left wing just you know, attacking anybody who um, went off the orthodoxy. But that conversation was really clear and, and laid out the problems. And then, uh, yeah, as you say, his reaction was to kind of say, well, you, you haven't understood this properly. And if I could sit you down in the room with Dave, you'd see that he's a, a good person. And it, it felt like <laughs> that, that doesn't matter. But I was willing to do that. I was happy to speak with Dave. And I, you know, I think it would still be pretty hilarious to do that now. Like I wouldn't <laughs> be against it. But um, yeah. And this idea, oh, if you could only meet so-and-so, you'd realize that they're a good person. It's just so stupid, so naive, so disconnected from reality, really good in certain circumstances, and then we're going to be bad in other circumstances. So if you meet me in a situation that is conducive to my goodness, you might fall under the misapprehension that I'm a fundamentally good person. Elliot Blatt says, intellectual dark web equals alt-right minus HBD, human biodiversity, minus the JQ. But uh, intellectual dark web is uh, pretty much centrist, center-left, usually, but just not... uh, mind-numbingly conformist to mainstream media. Today's that would, you know, that blocked me and didn't even want to talk about any issues, even on Twitter, you know, even though he supposedly was such a great ally to ex-Muslims, I would even say, like, hey, you know, as an ex-Muslim, like, before I knew much about Dave, I tweeted to him, I think, like, hey, you know what, from what I've seen, you know, I think you are an ally to ex-Muslims, but I think that you're going... You're, you're wrong here. Like uh, people like Tommy Robinson or Pat Condell are not mm. good people. They're not good critics of Islam. And he just, you know, he just blocked me for that kind of stuff. So, but they, the thing that and took it as well, you know, they, they were acting. Damn, I am really slack on my audio presentation. I, I was just muted again. But anyway, the woman, the host there of Polite Conversations was incredibly naive to think that you can classify people like Tommy Robinson as just bad people, right? Tommy Robinson, I'm sure, is bad in some circumstances. He's going to be good in others. It's such an unsophisticated appreciation of life and, and of human beings. In some circumstances, Tommy Robinson might run you know, into a burning building to, to rescue a child. And in other circumstances, he would be you know, unnecessarily confrontational, divisive, and antisocial. So both People on the left and the right, you know, all sorts of ideologues and, and podcasters just so quick to want to define people as just uh, good and bad. And uh, that's unsophisticated. Being in good faith at that moment then, and, and they, they just didn't see, you know, the signs that people were pointing out. The bit that I don't get and, and still seems really prevalent is that now, right, it, it's 2022. So you can look back and you can see the trajectory of all these people. You can see what happened on COVID and you can say, okay. So I missed something, and the you know, I the heterodox sphere has some problem that a large percentage of it went into COVID denialism and like great reset conspiracies. Like that's that's an issue, and I didn't identify that. And yet it does seem that not just Sam, but a whole range of people, they, they kind of see it as oh, those people went crazy, and it's impossible to explain what happened. It's it's like kind of a mystery, and it, it doesn't seem that mysterious. <laughs> it seems that you know they they were always more tolerant to right wing narratives and, and applying double standards, and they they got love bombed by the right. And then, you know, a bunch of them also had longstanding conspiracy 
tendency. So, yeah, it, it, I, I do think. Yeah, but the, the reason they were much more favorable to, to the extent that they were of narratives from the right is because that's how you got attention. And the intellectual dark web is primarily a marketing mechanism to get attention, to get clicks, uh, to, get, to get money, to get fame and to get status. Right? It's not primarily about supporting the right or supporting the left. Right? People go where they get the sunshine of clicks, attention, likes, status, right? articles about them that are glowing in the New York Times. Right? So people who, who are podcasters and people who are live streamers are not usually optimizing for truth, not usually optimizing for ideology, they are optimizing for self-aggrandizement. And, and that's what characterizes the, the intellectual dark web as well. So where do you get the, the clicks and the attention and the income during COVID by being opposed to the, the majority public health measures vis-a-vis -vis COVID? How do you get attention clicks like money when your natural instinct is to be on the left? is to find ways to defend the right and to condemn people on the left, then you'll have an enormous audience of people on the right who will send you money and give you hugs and likes and attention. All right. If these intellectual dark web types are getting you know, more attention and, and money and status for taking left-wing positions, that's what they're going to do. Right? We're talking about a movement that's primarily based around marketing and self-aggrandizement. It's not primarily based upon the pursuit of truth. That there's a kind of lacking thing in the whole heterodox sphere towards acknowledging the things that they didn't pick up on um, with Brett Weinstein and, and, and you know, Gadzad and the whole crew, James Lindsay. Right. I mean, even in your conversation with Sam, when you played him that clip, he said to you something like, oh, you know, back then I didn't you know, know enough about them to know how bad they were, even though he's the one that knew them personally and he's the one that used to share their awful content that I actually specifically pointed out to him yeah. within our conversation. And I was like, hey, you see, this is what they're doing is that they're putting out these people into the world without much context around them, like Anne-Marie Waters, who's too extreme for fucking UKIP. Mm -hmm. But um, Sam, here you are tweeting that out to everyone and saying this is like a brilliant conversation. Yeah. It's not that he didn't know enough. Mm. It's that he liked it. Mm. He liked what they were putting out. And I don't know why he can't just admit that he was wrong in retrospect, like, because it is beyond obvious now how wrong he was in judging so many people. And I do appreciate... So Sam Harris hates religion. Sam Harris hates the idea of God. So Sam Harris hates Christianity hates Islam, I would expect he's not particularly fond of Judaism either. So it's not surprising that he would side with people who are critics of Islam. Uh, when Sam Harris became famous in the 1990s, his main target was Christianity. But after 9-11, he saw that the main opposition, the main danger to the liberal values that he espoused came from Islam. So he naturally became much more friendly to those who were critical of Islam. And just like the 1990s, he probably thought the media and uh, elites were too favorable or too comfortable or too at ease with Christians and Christianity and not sufficiently aware of the threat that uh, Christianity posed. After 9-11, he realized that Islam was the greater threat. So it's no surprise to me, I don't see any big inconsistency that uh, Sam Harris is not a fan of Islam because it's in opposition to 
the type of liberal society that he wants. That you try to push back on that a fair bit, uh, though he didn't let you talk much. And I think your co-host just completely tapped out. After a while. <laughs> yeah, we weren't communicating via, you know, the, the chat box about like the way to ask questions to, to make them more right. effective, but none of it. Like there, there was an attempt where I kind of said, okay, I'm going to, uh, you know, front load the question by saying, okay, let me just outline two points, right? And then I'll give you a chance to respond. But usually that makes people not respond until you outline the two points. But, right. uh, but that was somewhat unique in that that didn't prevent them from, from uh, like <laughs> jumping in at points. So the, uh, the one thing that struck me. That reminds me of Stefan Molyneux. I mean, Stefan Molyneux just talks and talks and talks and talks. When you see him in dialogue with people, it's really hard for anyone else to get a word in edgewise. And it seems to come very much from an overly inflated, the grandiose sense of importance, which is completely disconnected from reality. Sam Harris, Stefan Molyneux, same problem. I know. And it, it struck me when I was listening back to the conversation. I mean, I also brought up the point with Sam about the, you know, he wouldn't be surprised if there was a 50-50 chance that France would fall into civil war within 10 years. Because um, when, right, when right. I, I was listening to that when I was driving back in the car, and I remember going like, <gasps> you know, what? <laughs> like, do, that's, what are you talking about? And that felt like a very extreme claim, even by the... So I think 9-11 was a red pill for, for many people. It helped them wake up that the, not every group is identically position to be a blessing to them and to help create the, the kind of society that you want to live in. So people got red-pilled by 9-11, started becoming much more skeptical of immigration, started becoming you know, much more concerned about illegal immigration, started becoming much more concerned about the war on stereotypes when stereotypes are overwhelmingly accurate and the ideal that you can't profile the certain characteristics of groups who are far more likely to commit you know, certain crimes or certain antisocial behavior, but you're not allowed to notice the reality of which groups are more likely to commit what. I think a, a lot of people thought, you know, what the hell is going on here? And so initially it probably took a form of uh, concern about Islam and Islamic immigration, but then it became more of a red pilling why can't we say certain things out loud? Why can't we build up the type of society that we want? You know, why why do we have to invade the world and invite the world? Why can't we just create a good society for ourselves and for our posterity, as the United States Constitution outlines? And so I think many people got red-pilled. They, they realized that uh, not all religions produce you know identical life results in their adherence that uh, different religions, different ethnicities, different groups have different gifts and create very different societies. And so people started seeing what was always bleedingly obvious, that the different groups have different gifts. But uh, many people, I think, became less and less willing to stay quiet about it. Similar to Gamergate, many people became less willing to accept that uh, men don't deserve their own spaces standards you know yes there had been the Bastille attack and all that but but that's talking about a civil war in a you know western democracy um in, within a decade yeah and i i find that very extreme and you highlighted you know i don't know the figures i have to say as well as you do but you know Anne marie waters and I, i'm aware of tommy Robinson and um and some of those figures but it, the fact that like you know sam would say that 
those people are saying very sensible things about immigration, about the threats of Islam, and so on. Yes, specifically those topics, too. The things that they are... It's not like he's like, oh, you know, she has some good recipes that she puts on YouTube <laughs> or whatever. It's yeah. completely unrelated. I, he is specifically interested in her views on immigration. And Tommy Robinson, like he said to Mariam Namazi in a conversation, again, like, you know, I don't know enough about him, so I'm not really defending him. But if you listen to his conversation with Dave Rubin, again, something else that he promoted... It, he is making perfect sense in that conversation. There is nothing, absolutely nothing bigoted that he says there. Yeah. Um, I'll give you an example of this. So, for instance, Tommy Robinson just did an interview with Dave Rubin where he made sense, really perfect sense, for an hour and did not say a single bigoted thing. Right now, I'm not very familiar with Tommy Robinson. I, I don't live in the U.K. And I just know that he is under the shadow of more or less constant accusations of racism and bigotry. And yet I hear him speak for an hour, and even when pressed on the topic of past associations with bigots, he made perfect sense and talked about how he left the EDL because of those racist elements that came into it. There is nothing, absolutely. Okay, so that's this is part of discussion up Sam Harris by a couple of lefties here, the left-wing host of Plank Conversations, the center-left guest is Chris Kavanaugh from Decoding the Gurus. Left-wing conversation but still a very interesting conversation, right? Often the left has very sharp perceptions of reality, very sharp provocative critiques, and we are improved by listening to people like like these two who are very articulate. They are truth-seeking from, from a left-wing perspective. Absolutely nothing bigoted that he says there. And then I went back and re-listened to the Dave Rubin conversation with Tommy Robinson because I remember finding it like horrifying even in 2016 or 15 or whenever it was. Yeah. And it is like borderline white nationalists, you know, like hordes and hordes of Muslim men are coming to rape our women and, uh, you know, Somali immigrants are coming. And it's just, it's horrifying. And that specific conversation is what he said. Okay, that, that's obviously an absurd point to be concerned about, uh, say, different groups have different rates of committing certain crimes, such as rape, that uh, different groups may not be equally suited for immigration to your society and fitting in and becoming contributing members of your society. That, that has next to nothing to do with uh, white nationalism, all right? You don't have to be a white nationalist or an ethnic nationalist or a religious nationalist to be concerned about who's moving next door, who's moving into your neighborhood, uh, who is committing rapes in your community. All right, any normal person is concerned about their quality of life and uh, whether the immigration of certain groups is bringing more and more people who are going to extract far more in social welfare services than they will contribute in taxes that they will commit disproportionate amounts of crime, that they will destroy you know, certain schools and public spaces, that uh, they will you know, form rape gangs, uh, as we saw in, in England with certain Pakistani immigrants. You don't have to be a racial or religious nationalist to be concerned about this. Was that, you know, if you don't know anything about Tommy and you heard that, you think he was perfectly reasonable. Well, no, because <laughs> yeah. he's extremist even in that. Yeah, and you know, it wasn't like his background was hidden at, at that time either. You know, the, it, it, this is this is something that I've noted as a uh, like something which I, I definitely think Sam lacks, and I think a whole bunch of people, another you know, interest of mine is the Weinstein's, and they are lacking in this regard as well. Is that they 
so you, right, after Sam referenced that conversation, you went back and listened to it and checked, mm -hmm. right? You, you kind of were like, okay, I remember it like this, but it wasn't as bad as I remember. So you went and did the annoying mm -hmm. thing of going and listening to a conversation. But a lot of times with Sam and, and others in that space, they'll, they'll kind of reference their impression. And if you say something like, you know, I, I asked Sam, you know, you were talking about the Christchurch shooter manifesto. You talked about it like three times on a podcast over a couple of months. Yeah. But you didn't read it. Right, it takes like thirty minutes yep. to read, and you you were debating with people about what the content <laughs> means, but you you didn't you didn't read it, and that like tendency to not do research or to you know not not just like okay, so is Tommy Robinson okay? Spend two days, like do some research on what he's done and what his background is. Seeing, I actually tried to raise this point about Stefan Molyneux, and we got sidetracked on the right. Christian uh, Piccolucci, Piccolini, Piccolini, yeah. And I, the point I wanted to make with the Stefan Molyneux um, raising was not actually to do with that, although you know we ended up debating like what the technical definition of Holocaust denial is, but... Um, in, Jesus Christ, yeah, in, I remember that. But what I wanted to point out to Sam was that with that uh, Stefan Molyneux stuff, before any conversation with Christian, there was about three years where Stefan was brought up periodically um, in Sam's monologues. Mm -hmm. And at one point he mentioned that he was the second most requested guest after Jordan Peterson. Um, and his monologues oh were always saying, no, I've heard bad things about this guy. I've seen some concerning clips, but I haven't researched it. I haven't looked into it. I know that people get smeared. Yeah. So I, I don't want to take a position. And like, that's okay the first time. Yeah. But when it's, you know, a year has passed and you're still saying, I don't want to pass judgment. There's this guy that people are calling white nationalist. I don't know. And I, I kind of think like, if this is the second most requested guest and people are saying he's a white nationalist and he'll, he'll convert into a Trump apologist, right? But who... Why, why not spend, you know, even, God forbid, a couple of days to do the research on Stephen Molyneux's content and, and then take a position? Because it's not hard to discover all the terrible misogynistic, you know, racist stuff that, that Molyneux had put out. Even Joe Rogan managed to unearth, like, some clips on his second appearance on his show. So I, I really do criticize Sam and, and others within the IDW for that. Like, it's either, uh, like, charitable blindness or it's strategic uh, ignorance so that they don't have to condemn someone that, you know, maybe some of their audience would, would like. And, you know, you can take the cynical and non-cynical perspective, but in either case, both things are bad. Um, so there's a hilarious Wall Street Journal article, which I think maps on perfectly with people who say, uh, call it quits with uh, racial nationalism. Rookie traders are calling it quits and their families are thrilled. Many who picked up investing during the pandemic are cooling on the hobby. By Rachel Louise Ensign, photographs by Meredith Coet for the Wall Street Journal. January 1st, 2023, 5.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Some novices who took up trading during the pandemic are abandoning the hobby. Their loved ones are breathing a sigh of relief. Spouses, parents, and other family members who were subjected to one too many play-by-plays of market movements say they are happy to have their loved ones back and equally glad they no longer have to hear about buzzy stocks or cryptocurrencies. Right, so what type of person is going to be absolutely obsessed with uh, crypto or with you know, racial differences or uh, this or that enthusiasm. All right, someone for whom life is painful and they suddenly find a way to transport themselves out of the uselessness of their life, out of the unbelievable pain of their life, out, out of the agony of their life. And they, they see this, this rope you know, leading to a, a new way of living. Right, where suddenly they can be winners instead of losers. So this is a hilarious story in the Wall Street Journal about all these families who are relieved that their sons, and it's almost always guys, that their sons, their brothers, their husbands, right, their, their fathers are, are no longer day traders and crypto enthusiasts. And so someone who is you know, such an enthusiast that they have to 
bombard people who don't care about their enthusiasm, right, is way out of touch with reality. It would be lacking in human relationships, lacking in ordinary human connection, be also disconnected from themselves, lack a sense of ease with themselves, it would essentially be living a miserable, delusional life if you suddenly become a person who can only talk about crypto or can you know only talk about meme stocks and you just bombard your, your family with this, this kind of unwanted conversation, right? There's something really wrong with your life. Just like if you are an extreme sports fan where you paint your face in the colors of your team, you do all sorts of extreme sports fandom, it's only people who have a pretty empty life who go to those extremes. And it's only people who, you know, become such crypto enthusiasts that they can't stop bombarding their family with talk about crypto, right? That, that only comes from a broken place, right? So these people temporarily found a way to transcend their pain, just like many people found meaning in life suddenly from becoming MAGA, make America great again, Donald Trump, or becoming alt-right or embracing this ethnic nationalism or this form of religious nationalism. So a lot of people with painful, dysfunctional lives, that lives that, that don't work, right, suddenly found a, a ticket to a utopia, to a place where they could have meaning and purpose and transcendence and success, where they would no longer be losers. So when you listen to this article, these you know, Johnny OneNote and crypto enthusiasts, they overwhelmingly sound like a bunch of losers. And and so it is with many people with particularly extreme uh, political fixations or sports fixations, right? If you can only talk about one topic, there's something really wrong. The market's wound in 2022, taking the fun out of day trading for many newbies. The S&P 500, after surging during the pandemic, just wrapped up its worst year since 2008. Bitcoin lost about 65% of its value throughout the year. Some amateur traders' families now face the disappearance of the life-changing sums of money they held in their portfolios at the height of the run-up. The stakes are lower for those who put a modest amount into meme stocks or crypto for fun. Alan Garcia started trading on Webull Financial LLC early in the pandemic when his work as a musician dried up. Soon Mr. Garcia was parked at his desk each day from 8.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. to manage his portfolio of about $2,000. He bet heavily on companies like Electromechanica Vehicles Corporation, which makes an electric car seating a single... Doesn't this sound like people who became enthusiastic about MAGA or Donald Trump or the alt-right or, you know, they take it on some sort of you know, extreme political or religious or social or cultural enthusiasm? So it seems... From, from this article in particular, it always comes from a very broken, dysfunctional place. Old person, ticker symbol solo. The obsession didn't end when he sat down in the living room with his wife, Adriana Rodriguez, each evening. For about two years, he talked about investing. Mr. Garcia, a 34-year-old Houston resident, even started watching investing videos in bed at night. He was here, Ms. Rodriguez said, but he wasn't here. In early 2022, Mr. Garcia lost everything in his portfolio on a bad options bet, leaving him in a foul mood. But the next morning, he felt relieved. After Ms. Rodriguez, a lawyer, left for the office, he worked. I mean, that sounds like so many people who really got into the alt-right and they blew up everything. They, they lost everything. They destroyed their relationships. They, they got fired from their jobs. They became pariahs in their community. They may well have been arrested and, and convicted. So these monomaniacal enthusiasms usually bespoke you know, very broken and therefore antisocial and somewhat dangerous, unhinged personalities on his music all day instead of checking the market. 
He hasn't traded on the app since. Ms. Rodriguez is thrilled. Mr. Garcia agrees it is for the best, mostly, anyway. We've never been this good in our lives, he said. One day I'll get that $2,000 back though. Trading exploded into the mainstream during the pandemic when many Americans were stuck at home, flush with stimulus checks and eager to pass the time. New apps made it cheap and easy for newbies to trade from the comfort of their cell phone, and many found a sense of community on investing forums online. In 2021, rookie traders fueled a run-up in meme stocks that put hedge funds on their heels. Individual investors are broadly staying invested in stocks, unlike previous downturns when many dumped their holdings. But lots of one-time day traders are finding they are now content to buy and hold rather than try to time their investments. Average daily trading volume is down markedly at major brokerage firms that cater to retail customers. Vince Major took a job in 2021 as head of marketing at a cryptocurrency wallet company, and soon he was subjecting his mother, Vicky Major, to his thoughts on various cryptocurrency projects and how the sector could revolutionize the financial system. His mother found it unbearable. Mrs. Major, who is 66 and a juvenile probation officer in Phoenix, told her son to knock it off. That inspired him to give a presentation at an October industry conference titled My Mother Hates Your Project and Mine. A duly chastened Mr. Major has cut back the crypto talk on morning FaceTime calls with his mother. After trying to speak about crypto in a more understandable way, he even convinced his mom to buy Ether and leave it in a virtual wallet using his company's app. Mrs. Major's Ether is down about 40% since she bought it in summer 2021, and it is now worth about $14,000 total. Mr. Major, who is 36 and lives in Los Angeles, said the value of his crypto holdings is up overall because he started buying in 2015 when prices were much lower. Mrs. Major figures her son knows what he is talking about, even if it was in an annoying way at first. He's very intelligent, she said. Marvin Lahoud went all in on investing when the pandemic hit, spending up to 10 hours at day trading. Mr. Lahoud, who works at a Boston construction management company and moved to the U.S. from Lebanon in 2017, started wearing an earpiece to listen to CNBC while doing chores. His wife, Susie Lahoud, tried to embrace the investing subculture, too, though she thought his interest might peter out as it had for previous obsessions, like photography and video games. The couple sang their daughter a song about investing as a lullaby. It's always nice to see him get excited about something, said Ms. Lahoud, a doctoral student. But there were times I would get a little frustrated just because it was taking up so much of his time and mental space. So this is me. Like I have gotten into serial enthusiasms to try to, you know, transcend what was essentially a selfish, self-centered, dysfunctional, largely antisocial, awkward, you know, ill at ease life. You know, it's not at ease with myself. It's not at ease with other people. And then I would just periodically seize on some new enthusiasm. So for a while, was, I wanted to become a Christian missionary. And then I wanted to become a general. Then I wanted to become a powerful politician. Then I wanted to be a marathon runner, a sportscaster, a TV newsreader. A professional journalist, uh, an economist, <laughs> I mean, an actor, uh, a model, like I just always take on new enthusiasms. Yeah, and I converted to Orthodox Judaism, that enthusiasm is, is stuck. But I, I was essentially trying to transcend a miserable, dysfunctional, you know, antisocial, ill at ease, awkward self. And I just get that same feeling from, from the people described in the story. And they also remind me of so many of the people that we met along the way through our interest in distant right politics, you know, often broken souls who suddenly find an enthusiasm which transports them out of their misery and they think, ah, finally I'm on the right path, right? You know, I'm going to quit my $120,000 $120, a year job to try for Uber so I can talk to people about the JQ. That's a Paul, Paul Little story. And then eventually almost all these people just crash and burn as opposed to other people who enjoyed the, the drama, 
and the conversations and the controversy that uh, came from the rise and fall of the distant right, but they didn't destroy their lives. So I've often met up with people who are quite interested in the distant right, but they, they managed to never blow up their lives over it. So some people can handle some things, all right? Some people can handle, you know, some naughty ideas and uh, maybe, you know, only engage in them recreationally. You know, other people just feel compelled to completely blow up their lives. All right, back to this conversation between two lefties, the host of Polite Conversations, the female, and the guest is Chris Cavanaugh from Decoding the Good. Now, which one do you lean towards? Well, so with Stephen Molyneux specifically, I, I think... It's similar to the Christchurch shooter manifesto, where I think Sam is so confident in his takes and his parsing of, you know, what the real issues are, that he, he kind of doesn't think that's the real topic, or he has better things to concern himself with than, you know, people talking about the outright growing on YouTube channels or that kind of thing. I think he regarded that as a moral panic um, promoted by the woke left, and that our real concerns, you know, were... Uh, the rise of like Islamism and 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 all well, of and also kids reading what Ibrahim Kendi in high schools. Yes, and, and, and I mean that's the, that's you've done this pretty clearly <laughs> on your episodes, like kind of exhaustively. But you know the when you contrast how confident that Sam or other people in IDW they are with just condemning all liberal institutions, all of academia, all of left wing media as like corrupted and untrustworthy, and it's you know we 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 cannot trust those sources anymore. And then when it comes to right wing stuff like Tucker Carlson, which to me. It's a, it's a free ball for people, you know, at least to just have a little bit of outsiders defense if they just say, yeah, that stuff is terrible too. But even then, mm-hmm. a bunch of them find it really hard to say, you know, they take the stance, well, I haven't watched it. And I, I know that Fox News is bad, but everyone knows that. So we don't need to spend time on it. But meanwhile, yeah. Peter Bogosian is currently in Hungary. So I like Tucker and I also think he's really bad. So sometimes he's incredibly courageous and says things that are important, but in his, you know, anti-vax lunacy in much of his, you know, anti-elite, you know, populist credulity, I, I think he's he's terrible. But he's also the most courageous and frequently the most important pundit and political commentator that we have today. But yeah, I, I would totally subscribe with uh, a third, at least, of Tucker Carlson's content is is terrible. And, and I think maybe a quarter of it is excellent. You know, giving lectures. Yeah for Orban's government. And that to me seems, you know, if you were somebody that was concerned about radicalization and about, you know, creeping totalitarianism and stuff, you have to be concerned about what's happening on the right. Um, like, if I don't see how you can do it evenly, but, you know, if, if you really have to do it evenly, you have to at least recognize what's happening on the right. And there, there does seem to be a willful blindness or a sympathy there that, uh, mm. that goes unacknowledged. So you lean more towards the willful blindness then, as opposed to just not doing research every single time? It depends on, it depends on the character, but I, I definitely don't think it's like it's an evenly distributed, you know, willful blindness to topics. Like there's, there's much greater sympathy if you take some like display towards Tucker Carlson than to like a public figure like AOC, right? And I know that he would yeah. dream that as well, that's because, you know, AOC is on my side, like the liberal side. So I feel fine being... So there's a question in the chat, you know, what are the, the biggest gaps in, in Luke's life aside from uh, music and, and food? And I'd say one of my biggest gaps is my lack of interest in censoring myself when it'd be more appropriate to do so in many social situations. So I kind of go through life where the most important people around me are saying, shh, like, calm down. Like, you'd be much better off if you didn't say those things or... I talked to them after a social outing and they was like, you know, I can't believe you said those things. 
Like that was like so completely inappropriate to the situation. You know, I wonder if you'll ever be invited back. I remember once I was at this pool party organized by my liberal synagogue at the time. And I met this guy who had a shaved head. And I said to him, oh, you know, the only people I know with shaved heads have cancer. And yeah, it turned out he had cancer. I was not invited back to that home or those pool parties anymore. So probably the biggest blind spot is how often I say things that are inappropriate, offensive, uh, self-absorbed, socially maladroit, yeah, that, that's one of the, the, the biggest blind spots is, yep, 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 yep. I just yep too much, too often, too self-involved. They're not taking into adequate consideration other people, their needs, the circumstance. More mm. critical of her, but, like, but really, I mean, how much are some other people praising AOC for the parts that they agree on? Like, like nothing, yeah. <laughs> right? So this is all stuff that people used to say about Ruben. Like, this is all the exact same excuses, you know, cleaning up my own side. That's why I don't even talk about the right. And what was the other thing? Oh, yeah, I don't know. I didn't have enough time or I didn't know enough about this guy. That's why I can't take a stance on him. Ruben mm. used to use all these same excuses. I mean, Ruben even said he didn't have the budget. Like, <laughs> what budget do I have? Like, <laughs> it's, it's hard. I'm a freelance, you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't have budget, but I have Google and I can just look people up. So that's no. just a nonsense excuse. That's, yeah, it's very hard to you need the extra finance in order to get right-wing criticism, <laughs> as we know. <laughs> and, uh, like, you know, even when you asked him about this uh, Arabia bullshit that he's published, it is so unhinged. It's like Alex Jonesian yeah. level of ridiculous, you know? And even after the Christchurch massacre, he didn't take a pause to think, like, shit, you know, that was very wrong of me because people... Okay, why is it unhinged to be opposed to the importation of people who are opposed to what you stand for? But if you love your family, how can you favor the importation of people who are a way above average threat to molest your family, to rape your family, to murder your family, to torture your family? Right? If you love something, then you naturally are opposed to anything that's going to damage it. All right. So many of the people that they're talking about on this show, like uh, Sam Harris or Dave Rubin, right? They love you know, center-left or left-wing liberal values, they understand Islam is, by by its nature, fundamentalist, and, and they threat to gay rights, transsexual rights, sexual liberty, sexual indulgence, right? all the things that they, they love, all the freedoms they love to, to view pornography, right? They, they see Islam correctly as a threat to this life of indulgence that they want to participate in, or just the values that they hold most sacred, the type of culture, type of nation, the type of community that they want to live in. I I don't see it as irrational that they would want to protect that which they love. I would think it's the most rational, the most normal, the most healthy thing in, in the world to try to protect that which you love. And when you protect that which you love, you inevitably hate that which threatens what you love. If you love something... Don't set it free. Protect it from those who want to hurt what you love. I mean, why is that so you know, bigoted and just awful? Online, we're pointing out that how similar that rhetoric is to the great replacement rhetoric in the manifesto, right? Yeah. It may not use the same blatant words, but it is that, you know, the ominous birth rates of Muslims. And it's the same kind of thing.
Yeah, it's in Douglas Murray's content as well, right? Like, and, and not very, not hidden. Yeah, yeah, which Sam finds impeccable, actually. Yeah. But what- so if there's a growth of uh, demographic groups who are inimical to the type of community that you want to live in, why would one not be concerned about that? These two lefties would be concerned about the, the rise of you know, hyper-religious people who want to replace democracy with theocracy. All right, the left says it's okay to be concerned about the importation of people who want to do away with democracy and replace it with theocracy. Right? That's a particular value system. But if you believe that, say, Christ is king, then why would you favor the importation of people who have a negative attitude towards Christians, who want to go to war with Christians, who hate Christianity? Uh, If you love your daughters, why would you want them to be limited in life? Why would you want them to not feel free to walk down the street? Why would you you want them to have a much smaller and, and more dangerous life because of the growth of demographics that say are at higher odds than normal of committing some heinous crime against your, your daughters. To me, this is just uh, basic common sense. It's, it's not even remotely irrational. What was his response to you? It was, well, I don't know. I'm not a demographer. Yeah. yeah which is, <laughs> that, and he kind of pointed out that there were mainstream figures who had kind of entertained those dem- demographic projections as well. But it was like Ross Doe had and stuff, right? From my own research, I know that it was the, the kind of like some of the, you know, center-right neocon types were the, ma- the majority of people who were endorsing that kind of view, which is kind of predictable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but they're neocons. <laughs> they're not pretending that all their biases are with the left. Yeah, on a similar note, and I, I only noticed this, I think it would have been this year, or, or it might have been even been in preparation for the interview I did with Sam, but uh, so he has a quite famous article which he published not that long after 9-11, I can, uh, in a magazine that was kind of saying we need the, the West needs to fight back about you know ex- Islamic extremism and uh, we need to stand up for Western values and all that. And that article was it was quite saber rattly. Um, you know after 9-11, okay, but the it was quite what sorry saber rattly. You know kind of uh, like it was it isn't the kind of thing that would have annoyed George Bush. Put it like that, right? The uh, it, it would be in line with the we need to be robustly responding. And, and kind of promoting Western values in the face of this right, right. existential threat. And, uh, and there's a mild version of that, which everyone agrees with, which is, you know, we don't want totalitarian theocracies. We want, like, re- representative democracies and, and, like, equal rights. So, like, that part everyone can sign off on. So you don't really need to. Only the insane tankies or, or crazy people. Okay, so notice everyone can sign off with opposing immigration of people who want a religious autocracy, who want a theocracy as opposed to liberal democracy. So... There, they have no problems with being concerned about demographics. There, they have no problems with restricting immigration. All right, that is, you know, what is sacred to them. There is their holy space. There is their, you know, devotion to to values that, that transcend their inclinations against, you know, bigotry and racism and anti discrimination. So it's okay to want to protect your democracy from outsiders, but what about people who want to protect other parts of their hero system, right? There, there are people who believe in things, you know, aside from democracy. Some people believe that Christ is king. Why would you not want an immigration policy and public policy and educational policy and media policy around protecting that, you know, crucial part of your hero system? When you, when you hear anyone deny that Christ is king, who mock the, the idea that Christ is king, why would you not, you know, be enraged and, and feel that as as an assault on, on your very being. 
right? If, if you really believe in your Christianity and someone's mocking Christianity, why would you not feel that as a visceral pain that you have been assaulted, that you have been harmed? And so why would you not want to shape public policy to minimize harm to you? So these lefties talk about minimizing harm, but they mean minimizing harm to their favored sacred groups, you know, their marginalized communities, gays, transgendered, uh, blacks, Jews, etc. right? And uh, limiting harm, all right? They want to minimize harm to liberal left-wing democratic values and practices, right? So they're all for immigration, immigration restriction and public policy that reduces harm to their hero system. But other people have different hero systems. Why would those people with different, say, more traditional hero systems, say, revolving around belief in God, revolving around finding your place in the cosmos, revolving around taking it for granted that marriage means marriage between a man and a woman, who take it for granted that uh, being in the military means participating in a heterosexual enterprise where men don't have to be concerned that they're going to be stuck in, in foxholes with, with other men who may try to have sex with them, right? People who want their values, their hero system, simply taken for granted in society. And they don't want harm done to that which they regard as sacred. Perhaps they view that men and women have different gifts. Perhaps they view that different ethnic and racial and religious groups have uh, different gifts. Maybe they believe in freedom of association, right? Why would these people not want to have an immigration policy, an education policy, a you know, a politics, a, a media, a system of elites that protect from from harming what the, they see as sacred. Imagine if people at universities would get suspended if they mocked Christianity or they mocked the American flag or they mocked American patriotism or they, they mocked you know, some other traditional value or, or belief or, or practice. And if they said things that were critical or derogatory about Christianity, that they would then have to undergo mandatory sensitivity training. Like, why is sensitivity training necessary for how you treat to you know, marginalized communities, but not necessary for how you treat you know, Christians? Like, why, why do some groups deserve all these social and educational and political and legal protections, but not other groups? It all depends on your hero system. If your hero system is Christian, why would you not want public policy and education policy and immigration policy to protect that which you regard as sacred? Because any assault on your hero system, any assault on, on the values that you hold are sacred, right, that causes you tremendous harm. That That is is sometimes more painful than, than a punch to the jaw or, or a kick in the balls. So when we talk about harm and harm reduction, well, whose harm depends on what you hold sacred on what your hero system is. And these people seem to have no idea that there are other hero systems aside from the left-wing one. Okay. We don't, that, that's a really, you know, you, I, I think you don't need to spend that much time on, on giving yourself a backpack for not wanting to live in a theocracy. But the, <laughs> the, the point about that article was it appeared in the Washington Times. The Washington Times is like the Mooney outlet, pretty openly promoting right-wing uh, you know, rhetoric, narratives, whatever way you want to put it. And it's a it's a newspaper that is like run by a cult. And it, it just, that struck me as like really surprising that that wouldn't seem, uh, you know, cognitive distance. But I honestly don't know. And I, I didn't ask Sam about it. I think I forgot. But uh, whether he knew. 
Well, for most people, their primary question about a cult would be, is it good for my hero system? Is it good for my in-group? Is it good for the type of community that I want to build? Is it good for the type of life that I want to lead? Is it is the cult good or bad for the values that I believe in? Is it good or bad for that which I hold sacred and, and holy? So uh, is it Shinzo Abe, the retired Japanese prime minister who was recently assassinated, right, brought attention to the assassin's agenda that too many politicians are taking money from the Unification Church, from, from the Moonies, the, the people who, who still operate or used to operate the, the Washington Times. So the, the subsidizing of politicians, the, the buying of influence by the Unification Church was kind of taken for granted till the assassination of, of Shinzo Abe. And so now people are taking a more critical look at the activities of the Unification Church. Many people feel that their family members or friends have been indoctrinated and have gone, gone joined a cult. So the people in the Unification Church have a particular hero system. You have a hero system. I have a hero system. Our hero system may not think it's a good thing to go join the, the Moonies, right? It, it depends on your hero system. It's not like there's just you know, an objective meaning of life that, you know, is, is written in, in some objective setting that we can all consult, all right? We all, we all have to come to accept, you know, a particular order of the universe or a particular hero system that gives our life transcendent meaning. The, what the Washington Times is, um, when he wrote the article for it, or whether he thinks it matters, because I, it could be either, right? He might not have done any research. Well, you know, he takes this stance on, you know, how the source shouldn't really matter, as long as you agree with the information or whatever. Like, he's often said, like, you know, I would take a point from Hitler um, mm. if he was right about something, yeah. you know? However, he's not consistent in that, because if something is in Salon or Vox, or when Lawrence Krauss' accusations came out in BuzzFeed News, he did a whole thing on his podcast saying that he couldn't, you know, he didn't take it seriously at the time because it was BuzzFeed News, mm. and... Yeah, it's like, okay, so you'll take a point from Hitler, but not, like, BuzzFeed News. Yeah, not Ezra Klein. He's beyond the field. Not Ezra Klein. <laughs> yeah, yeah but, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's, I, I mean, I think your episodes, I, and I, I know that there's a lot of people who are fans of Sam that, you know, won't, won't listen to it. But I, I think that if they did, regardless if they agree, you know, overall with your, your, because your stance on Sam is, you know, is highly critical, and, and you justify it, that's the, the, but, but setting that aside, the, um, the, when you play a clip where he's saying, you know, I extend charity to, I would be willing to, you know, acknowledge that Hitler had made a good point, and then immediately mm-hmm. kind of saying we have to disregard anything that comes from SPLC because it's captured by wokeism. And yeah. I kind of, you know, like, that's an obvious contradiction, and it's also, it's not necessary because you could be critical of the, you know, the institutions that Sam wants to criticize. You, you can take issue with, like, some of the judgments that they make or the things that they say, right. but you don't have to disregard everything they do right and and they do lots of very good research on like white nationalism and, and that kind of thing which is an area where sam has been historically bad so it, it kind of feels like you shouldn't be lecturing uh like kathleen bellu um when blue, she on yeah. A blue. yeah thank you um about you know the appropriate way to approach the far right because like history has suggested that she's <laughs> she's more correct than he is on that topic Oh, it's just so funny to me because i mean these are not laughing matters at all because i i find them quite urgent and quite alarming but it is almost comical the way that this all plays out. Like people get mad uh, when, you know, Sam is compared to Trump because he's such a prolific Trump critic or whatever. Mm. We'll talk about that in a bit. But um, do you see there being any parallels at all? Like in the stubbornness and the, you know, with Trump, the being so sure of. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I, I think, you know, we, between you and I, in terms of our approach to Sam, and, and I know you've been critical of, of me for this reason, it's definitely true that I have, you know, a better opinion, although I share a lot of the critiques. But in, in terms mm -hmm. of whether it's fair to draw specific parallels between, like, Sam and Trump, in terms of, I, I think it is legitimate, and I think in the point that you're highlighting where it's a kind of certainty attached to mm -hmm. their, their interpretation is just, you know, that's just the truth. It's just correct. And uh, it's not like Sam has the same complete cavalier disregard for, you know, anything being true that like Trump has. He's not like that. But in, in terms of his... No, yeah, even I'm not saying that. Yeah, but in terms of his... I'm not saying he's exactly like Trump. Just, you know, just to be clear, I'm not saying that they're exactly the same level of everything, but I just see a certain Trumpiness in him. No, I'll, I'll, I'll 100% sign off that like, uh, you know, I had the conversation with Sam and it was nice of him to come on and have it and even when it got, you know, quite testy. And I, I do give him credit for doing that and, you know, sticking it out mm -hmm. for three and a half hours mm -hmm. or so. Um, and, and, and I think at the beginning he made quite a lot of valid points about his meditation app, although, you know, that's not the thing that most people focused on. But... Um, <laughs> But the 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 part, one thing I will say is that I talked to a whole bunch of people on the podcast now, lots of lots of different people, you know, lots of like very intelligent people who have interesting things to say and are public intellectuals like Sam. And uh, I've not interacted with someone who has such a forceful sense that their interpretation is correct, and that if you don't if you don't agree, it's because you're mistaken, not because you have a different opinion. Or crazy. Or crazy. Well, you get that. I don't get that. I, I, <laughs> I I'm probably more represented as like having an unhealthy obsession with policing his networks and interactions and all of the people he talks to. And, you know, that, that is the way that a lot of uh, criticism gets streamed as, well, you're just, you know, who cares that he had a conversation with somebody who eventually ended up to go crazy and that kind of thing. But I, I know you know this, but I'm just spelling out that, like, if I had a bunch of friends that I had conversations with and I'm promoted and said, you know, these guys, they, they're on the ball. And in three years' time... 50% of them had became conspiracy theories arguing that the election didn't happen and COVID was a, you know, a, 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 the vaccines aren't real or don't work and they're all a conspiracy. I would have serious concerns about my judgment and my social network, but that, that seems to be regarded as like by a certain group of people as being, you're just being unfair and applying a standard that nobody could live up to. And like, I don't think that's true. It's, it's not that you can never interact with someone who goes uh, insane, right, or, or becomes a conspiracy theorist. That happens. Like, people change. But, but not, like, half your friends or most <laughs> yeah. of your friends. Yeah, yeah. and also, you're, what you do after that happens also matters. So, you know, I, I give Sam yeah. credit for criticizing yes. Brett, Brett Weinstein. I know this. I, and I, <laughs> yeah. I know that's the ire of, of many people who see it as, like, you know, it's a very low bar to overcome when somebody is a, <laughs> an anti-vaccine proponent in a pandemic. And I agree. It is a very low bar, but it's a low bar that many have not managed to jump. They just smacked it and they right. fell over. So it's it is completely <laughs> true that it's a low bar. But I I am still I'm still happy when somebody is like, no, Brett Weinstein is an anti-vax person, um, and I'm like, yeah, he is. It's really obvious. Like, thank God. <laughs> Hooray! Yes. <laughs> right. 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 You can have the occasional person that you have praised, especially for their intellect and their open-mindedness and their ability to have difficult conversations and their intellectual honesty, which is above like most of the you know normy worlds yeah. um and then they ha they go like this and then most of the people you've praised go like this like how many are there i mean i think 50 percent is generous to be honest like there's ayan hersi ali there's joe rogan there's dave rubin there's uh, majid nawaz there's Brett weinstein and sort of eric weinstein no, eric i put up there eric let's, let's throw him in douglas murray yeah and um peter Bogosian. gad sad on the yeah and james Lindsay has also been you know promoted and highly praised by sam harris once upon a time during the days of the penis hoax or the socal hoax and i mean yeah so <laughs> a lot of people were able to see through that back then yeah yeah um so that's not that's more than 50 percent yeah it, it, i mean it depends where you draw the boundaries because i i think right. like there are people that also get uh, criticisms uh, for like justified reasons i think and and some that i probably disagree a bit more with but like jonathan Haidt, steven pinker 
that kind of wing that you know was never really presented at the core of the IDW, but was at least associated with it. I think they've done better, right? Which is that they have not promoted anti-vaccine misinformation and they've not promoted election fraud, and they were happy mm. when Trump lost. Like these are mm. these are low things for people on the left. Extremely to, low, <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. But but, it's, but it, you know it, it's kind of depressing that these are still things. I'm glad to see that in the heterodox uh, space that there there are people <laughs> doing that, and I, I I think that you know the the Joe Rogan stuff as well, like that's been presented as a really complex topic where you know there's there's lots of issues to debate and stuff, and I kind of feel like. It's not, you know, you, you can take whatever stance you want about whether Joe should, like, be kept on Spotify, but most people, most of the critiques are saying, yeah, but look what he's promoting, look what his content is, and, and acknowledge that, and then take your stance, you know, but, but many people, like you did on the episode, uh, they, they don't actually grapple what, what Joe's content is or has been for a long time, and they, they can't right. defend this version, which is very easy to defend, which is just like, you know, it's fine for people to have conversations, including challenging conversations with controversial people, like, yes, sure, but that's not all he does. And, uh, yeah. yeah. And, and Sam and, and Coleman Hughes kind of presented it like, you know, if the world was full of Joe Rogan, that would be, you know, <laughs> it would be a utopian. Like, no, it wouldn't. He's, he's like defended Alex Jones for 20 years. Like, oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, those were some takes. Like, Sam Harris saying that Joe Rogan is a cure for racism. Like, yeah. I mean, it just might be my lady brain, but I can't wrap my head around that. Like, how, how does someone... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, it, it, it is an odd uh, argument to make because, like, I can't, you know, I heard your episode um, when you were making the point that, you know, Sam and all the people had kind of stated, uh, including, you know, like, black athletes in the UFC who are very, uh, mm-hmm. defend Joe Rogan, like, very strongly. Mm-hmm. And they, they basically want to say, you know, he doesn't, he's not a racist, he doesn't come across as a racist to me and his con, you know, he's never treated me like that. I always seem a very nice guy. Yeah. But, but, like, you can, I, the bit I don't get is you can, you can take that stance, right? And you can say, you know, that's not, I don't think he's that, the way he's being portrayed. But you also, Okay, so the woman who was hosting this podcast uses a pseudonym, Aina. She is on Twitter under Nice Mangoes. She is a Pakistani who grew up in Saudi Arabia. She's an illustrator. She's the host of the Polite Conversations podcast. She is a ridiculer of the international dark web, intellectual dark web. She loathes right-wingery. She's on Patreon, and and here she is. Meet the Pakistani Canadian woman who wrote the children's book "My Chacha Is Gay," writing about sexuality in general and homosexuality in this book for children. Aina has gained supporters and detractors in equal measure. My Chacha Is Gay. First thing you notice when you click on Aina's blog, Nice Mangoes, is a disclaimer warning you the blog that you're about to view may contain content that is uh, suitable only for adults. So Aina is a pseudonym. She's a Pakistani-Canadian blogger, illustrator who blogs and draws about sexuality in South Asia, Pakistan mostly. She writes and illustrates children's books in the hopes of promoting more inclusivity diversity and secular values and to create resources where South Asian children are featured as characters because she feels they're very underrepresented in international children's literature. So how did the concept behind my chacha is gay emerge? Something I'd been planning for a long time. I write about sex and sexuality. Homosexuality is something that comes up often. I wanted to do a children's book tackling homophobia as I think it's a way of breaking down and simplifying the issue and to speak to adults too. 
I wanted to make a picture book. Pakistani media, surprisingly, has been very silent on my chacha is gay, despite the fact that this book has been covered all over the world and in some international papers too. The general response from Pakistan has not been great. My chacha is gay. Have you have you read this book? My chacha is gay. Wow, it's even got a, uh, a cartoon. It's got a lovely Pakistani family. And I'm sure they've got some gay things going on as well. So the, the, the woman who's hosting this podcast, Polite Conversations with Chris Cavanaugh, is the author of My Chacha is Gay. I also have to say, right. But he did say that the, you know, that he was in front of the apes and he was in a black neighborhood. And then he did say yeah. that, you know, the best combination would be like uh, a black yeah. body and a white brain and black people and white people's brains are different. And like, that's not, right. that's not on the edge. Racism are like, yeah. well, is that racist or is that just, you know, a, a joke? Like, if it's a joke, it's a racist joke. So Exactly, exactly. You can think whatever. Can, can, just asking for a friend, can something be racist and also true? And if, if something is true... Is it still appropriate to give it the slur racist? Response you want, but I, I wish that people were saying, you know, okay, so he did, he did make a racist joke and presumably he made more of them if those are the only, um, you know, the ones that people are highlighting. It's unlikely that he never made any other such joke. So, but, but there, there's this like thing where people, uh, and you, you noted that, you know, Trevor Noah had uh, made this point, right, in the second video or second time that he addressed yeah. it. He was like, yeah, but it was a racist joke, right? And, uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't know why that would be hard for people because you could even still issue the defense, right? You could say, I know Joe, he's not like this. He may have said that. and it, But that wasn't the take. The take was like, there is no definition of racism that can include yeah. Joe Rogan. Yeah. <laughs> yes. wow. like, tell me, how is that not Trumpy? That's so Trumpy. <laughs> it, it, you know, the, the, the tendency towards overstatement when it comes to, like, I'm... I need to suffer in slightly the opposite direction. But, and I think a lot of academics do, where we're, we want to caveat things and we want to say, well, you know, not in that situation or this one, maybe this exception. Oh, well, Harris does that too, a lot. But he, but he, he does the thing which you <laughs> said, which is he doesn't mind to say all of our institutions are captured or to say there is no universe in which Joe Rogan could be called a racist by anybody's standards. And it, it's like, that's a big, like, those are really yeah. big claims. And, and when he did, when Sam made that point about institutions on, on the episode where I was, or the interview we had with him, uh, I was saying, you know, he was talking about wokeism uh, or CRT kind of taking over all all schools, all like primary schools in the US. And then I don't know about the <laughs> curriculums in the US. So I said, but is that is that really true? Like, is that true? And then he switched in like one sentence to say, well, you know, in in, in like, private schools in Manhattan. Yes. It yeah. is. I'm like, right. Well, private <laughs> schools in Manhattan are not. These critiques are coming from the left, and obviously some of them I disagree with, but uh, many of them are quite sharp. So here's a left-wing podcast, but you know a lot of a lot of uh, very sharp analyses, along with some you know stupid, stupid analyses. This is, this is why it's often a good example to listen to different perspectives from all over the political spectrum. Not all of the schools in the U.S. and like that switch from. <laughs> all schools in the U.S. to some private schools in Manhattan. It's like, that's a massive leap, but he, you know, he just did it in a sentence. So I, 
I cannot do that. Like that would be whiplash right. for me. And, <laughs> so yeah. he did this majorly in my conversation with him too. And I think if I remember correctly, that's the first time that I came across you on Twitter is that there was a clip from my podcast with Sam that went very, very viral. Like, uh, I don't know, three, three years or four years later, I think oh. it was like 2019, 2018, maybe hmm. something like that. Not, not too long ago, but, uh, far enough away from the conversation that, uh, it like hit me in the face again. So, this was a point that I was bringing up to him um, that I thought was like a slam dunk. Like he's going to see my point because, you know, I used to be at a point to similar to where you are, like trying to be charitable and nicer and like having hope that it is just out of ignorance um, that he doesn't know these things. And so if I just provide him with the information, he's going to understand, hopefully. Mm. And so there was this one point where I was like, okay, so Anne-Marie Waters, right? She's, um, she's so racist, Sam, that she thinks if you aren't, anti-immigration, you are pro the rape of white women. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's something that she said to me and Mariam Namazi, I believe. And I thought, oh, yeah, Sam's going to be like, oh, wow, that is, whoa. Yeah. You know, instead, he said, uh, yeah, but she's right. And I, I, like, yeah. even in that moment, I was, <laughs> like, stunned into silence. So, like, you can hear that there's just a little, like, what? Yeah. You, <laughs> like, you, for me. I, I remember that part in the interview where you kind of gasped and uh, laughed and saying, what? Yeah. Like, and, uh, yeah. yeah I, I will say that I, as I said, yeah, if you are for the importation of demographic groups that commit disproportionate amount of crime, such as rape, then you are essentially you know, trending towards, in effect, pro-rape. Even if you're not literally pro-rape, the effect of what you support is pro-rape. So it's pro-rape for all sorts of different groups who would then be negatively affected by the importing of uh, rape gangs. So I don't think that uh, Sam Harris was, was making a completely ridiculous point here or Anne-Marie Water. I, I actually had a similar anticipation that, you know, Sam might take the opportunity discussing with someone that's critical, but of him, but that has, you know, like sympathy for, I, I, my, I myself, like the co-host on Decoding the Gurus, we're pretty open that we're, you know, we're center-left people. We're, we're not progressive. And like, that puts us closer, theoretically. I haven't noticed. Yeah, yeah I know. It's like, of course, it's, it's well, there is a thing where sometimes people present it as if, you know, have you noticed that Chris is, you know, like, the, uh, like a center left or, you know, neoliberal shell. And I'm, I'm kind of like, yeah, I did say that <laughs> repeatedly. I'm not, I'm not hiding where my, how moderate my, my politics are. But it, that definitely puts me, you know. We'll, we'll talk about that, but let's finish sure, this. Sure. Uh, I definitely want to talk about that a bit more, but yeah, go on. So that puts me, you know, uh, regardless of whether you, you know, think I'm a center left, neoliberal Rochelle or, or, or in the secret neocon. But in, in either case, I'm closer to Sam's politics, right, than mm -hmm. somebody that's on the progressive mm -hmm. end. And so it could be the case that, you know, he could have used the discussion to moderate positions and, and kind of say, yeah. walk back, uh, like some of the more extreme claims and, and kind of acknowledge, for example, that you were correct in your assessment and he got things wrong. And he didn't. And I, I will say I was surprised that that was the way it went down. <laughs> I guess you wouldn't have been surprised. Um, but uh, I expected in the same respect that, you know, when you highlight some some inconsistencies or some takes which now seem extreme and even at the time were, you know, the demographic projections or the thing about civil war in France. But there are very few points in the conversation I had with Sam where he concedes anything, um, except at the beginning where he's talking about the meditation app and when he, I think it was good that he acknowledged that his interpersonal relationships bias his charity towards people, right? Even though he refused to extend that, that that might make him 
sympathetic to pe- you know to a certain category of people because your friendships are not randomly distributed. Um, they, uh, but-, but that's a very low bar. Again, he was only saying that if he knows someone personally, he'll just be like n- nicer to them or hesitate more in calling them out. That's which right. Is, like, but, not- but he did say uh, this was before the conversation went a bit more sorry and <laughs> became hostile. He he, <laughs> he did uh, acknowledge that like with Majid, it's the case that he doesn't want the look. Right, like so. That right. was like admitting willful ignorance because he knows he must know what he'll see if he looks at Magic. Yeah, right. and I can understand that. You know, on the human level, I completely get that. But on the level of you're a public intellectual with a platform, and your argument has always been, you know, ruthless truth telling and uh, willingness yeah. to, you know, offend. intellectual honesty. Yeah, correcting yourself when you're wrong. Exactly. So yeah, that that was um, that was just that was at the beginning of the conversation, but it. it that didn't, there wasn't really any other walking down of points apart from that. Okay, I think I will call it quits right there for today. Talk to you later. Bye bye.